Welcome to the Aging Hipster. I am Bob Strano. Let's go back to 1991, where we are going to surf, rob banks, and play some beach football. This week, we watched Point Break. Welcome to the podcast, the Aging Hipster Movie Show. Where we watch our favorite movie, the Aging Hipster Movie Show. Why we like them, the Aging Hipster Movie Show. Everything we love in the cinema, it's the Aging Hipster Movie Show. And we're back. Rejoining us is the one, the only, DJ Webmaster Toby Crines. Welcome back, Toby. Thank you, Bob. Excited to be here. I am so excited that you're back. You missed Willow. You missed Crawl, but they're coming oh, out. I'm so but, sad. Yes, but you are back, and that's all that matters. And next up is our movie expert from TimMonsters.com and Tape Freaks. It's Tim Holly. How are you doing, Tim? I'm doing all right. Happy to, happy to be here to talk about Point Break. Oh, me as well. <laughs> And we have a very special guest tonight. He set an aging hipster record for the most amount of slashes. Actor slash director slash martial artist slash guitarist slash podcaster slash Canadian slash I think you also drive cars. I drive right? cars. A lot of cars. A lot of motorbikes. Anything like that. <laughs> slash everything. It is Sean Benson. Hey, everybody. How's it going? Thanks. You might recognize him as Ezekiel in season one of The Boys. And he is in the upcoming Netflix show, Tiny Pretty Things, which is premiering in October. Not sure when. Uh, the 30th. We're, we're, we're dropping on the 30th on Netflix. And uh, to be honest, I don't know what if they're doing it all at once. I don't think they're doing weekly, but I don't know if they're doing a boys type thing. They probably <laughs> aren't after all the shit the boys got for that. So, you know, they'll probably drop it all at once. Well, How many episodes uh, is it? Ten. Ten. Yes. Yeah. Wait, are you talking about the boys on, uh, not dropping all eight or whatever at yeah. once? Yeah. Honestly, I like that better. I see what I, I see. Just do it that way because it just prolongs the the it's talk way about it. Right? Better. It's way better. I'd rather watch a show weekly. I mean, look, we're all aging yeah. hipsters here. I'd yeah, rather yeah. watch a show. So I, I really got into Lucifer, which is just a ton of fun. Mm-hmm. And then I started binging Lucifer. Now, when you're in quarantine, uh, which I am right now, and you watch 26 episodes of a procedural drama, you wish it came out once. So every episode is the same. Oh, it loops on its suits did this when I used to binge it. And uh, billionaire, Billions did this. Like great shows that then just have to keep, you know, episode 18, season three. They're kind of going, oh, who do we match up this time? And um, yeah, so the once a week is better than binging for any show, really. So you mentioned that you're in quarantine right now. Yeah. So you're you're preparing to go into production, correct? Yes, I am. Can you talk about this process? I can. I actually. Uh, so basically, uh, by the way, first off, uh, when I checked out your podcast and listened to a bit, I didn't hear that intro. If I'd heard that intro, I'd have responded much sooner and been like, uh, "We're like, hey, <laughs> that's that's fancy." Yes. I, yeah. Well, I I paid for the fanciness, and that's always check out the last episodes, right? Okay. Yeah, I but. did not know how legit this was. Um, but so, uh, yeah, what happens is I'm from Toronto mostly. I go between Toronto and LA, but uh, since about mid last year, I've been in Toronto. And this film is in Winnipeg, which is in Manitoba, about two thousand kilometers away, which is the neighboring uh, province, which. For U.S. listeners, that's like a state. And so we have to do a two-week quarantine. And then what that enables us to do is, for example, I've got love scenes in the film. um, And that lets us have those intimate scenes and not need to cut them. Um, Because, you know, a lot of productions, like soap operas I know for a while, they were going back and they were keeping the actors six feet, using longer lenses to create the idea, which is really smart, by the way. Um, 
Uh, but in this case, I think we're trying to create a little bit of a bubble so that we can shoot. I know the crew is going to be really masked up. And this is my first shoot post uh, COVID showing up. So I think that we might have to, you know, just sort of stay away from everybody and maybe be masked up before we then roll. But uh, to be honest, I don't know about that yet. Um, I've probably got the union protocols somewhere in an email that I haven't read yet. <laughs> What's the policy on open mouth kisses? Well, there's some in the script, so we're going to find out. All right. You got to yeah. quarantine for that. That's what you, that's, <laughs> that's, it. that's the idea. Although, you know, what's a bit odd is that once we start interacting with other people, I mean, we're then not quarantined anymore. So it's good, but it's not a perfect system. It's not like we're all on Love Island and got checked or UFC Fight Island. Like we're basically, as I, I'm literally wearing jujitsu spats. I've got like a plaid hipster shirt and jujitsu spats. Um, but yeah, so it's uh, it'll be really interesting to see. But I know that the general's onset protocols are built around the fact that someone does have COVID. Uh, obviously, right? So, mm-hmm. so it's pretty great because it's not built around the idea that we're preventing it from showing up. It's that it has shown up. What if the camera guy does have it, doesn't know it? We'll build our protocols from there. And the people I know who've been back to, back to set, they feel safer than ever. Yeah. Yeah. I got to say too, that that long lens technique, I went to a uh, workshop at uh, the local theater here and they did a fight scene like right in front of me, but they were like 10 feet apart yeah. and it looked like they were punching oh, yeah. each other. Oh like, yeah. It, it was actually a tough thing for me because I had been doing martial arts for years before I started acting and, and still am, am more into it than ever. And it's like legit fighters have to go like the stunt guys always going, pull it back, pull it back, uh, show the technique more. You got to cock the arm. If you don't cock the arm, the audience doesn't know what's happening. And then when the other guy smacks his face across, um, the audience doesn't know why. But in real life, that's how you want to do something because you don't want it to be telegraphed. And so you actually have to unlearn a ton of stuff if you, uh, because I know, Toby, you have a big martial arts background, right? Huge. Yeah. Is it the Y? Uh-huh. Oh, thank you. Yeah. It seemed so like I, you know all this. Like skills, yeah. yeah. So you know this. Yeah. <laughs> um, can you talk to us a little bit about uh, Tiny Pretty Things? And so I, I saw a video where you said you were... You started off as a dancer in college, yeah. is that correct? Uh, well, actually, what happened was, so this is this is super exciting for me. Um, Tiny Pretty Things is based on a book that was really popular. Not really a tween thing, but because of the ballet, it does tend to that audience. And um, so it's about basically all the machinations and drama that happen at a like top ballet school in Chicago. And I play the head of the ballet school. Um, not the administrative head. That's Lauren Holly, who's fucking brilliant. Um, can we swear on this? Are we swearing? Yeah, on this? yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, and uh, especially about Lauren Holly, whom whom uh, she was great and crank too. And, dumb and Dumber, Bob. What would you say? <laughs> yeah, there's she awesome. is. She's just a divine person and a divine actor. Uh, oh, can, I, I love her. Something blew my mind about Lauren Holly and Dumb and Dumber is that if she got married to Jim Carrey, whose name was uh, Lloyd. Christmas. Her name would have been Merry Christmas. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Anyways, go on. Yeah. Yeah. Like, thanks for that. Thanks. Yeah. Um, so I play the head ballet instructor at the school. And uh, so when I was nine, when I was, okay, first off, when I was five years old, my mom comes to me and goes, it's time for you to take a lesson, either piano or ballet. And what she later told me is that she was fucking with me and giving me no choice because I'm obviously going to choose piano, which I did. But then we had a teacher in grade four, I think it was, it might've been grade five, who came and did a choreography group. And 
we did like Eye of the Tiger. I'm not kidding. We were at the mall doing like bump, 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 which is probably half the reason why I started karate too. Um, and then New York, New York. It was a little cheesy to be honest, but you know, it was good for nine year olds in a mall. And I went home to my mom and I was like, okay, can I do both now? Can I do the ballet too? And she just looked at me like, what? Like didn't. And so anyways, I started taking ballet and for a decade, uh, it was one of my utter passions. I mean, um, passion to the point where, okay, so I had long hair long before grunge hit. So I got made fun of a ton for that. So it's basically a really pretty kid who did ballet in high school and uh, guys wanted to fight me. Girls didn't want to date me. They were confused by who this guy was. Guelph wasn't too small a town, but it was, you know, small enough that there wasn't a real uh, outlet for this. Um, so first off, grunge hits. And within a day, I'm really popular because all the time alone, not being invited to parties, I got really good at guitar. And I already had the hair that everyone had to grow from the hip hop being cool. So they're like, oh, shit, um, I got to grow my hair now because of Kurt Cobain. And I already had it. So it was an interesting um, way to learn about myself and also how uh, not just fashion, but like peer pressure and shit works. In any case, I never gave up on the ballet. I loved it. Um, and by the time I was 18, went off to university and there I auditioned for a couple of dance shows and I was pretty much the only guy in the shows. So that's where I really fell in love with performing. I'd always done it as a lark in high school and hosted things or played music. But that's when I realized that a performance with its own artistic, um, no, it's, it's only raison d'etre. It's only reason for being is that it's beautiful or interesting or compelling. Um, I'd never understood that before this one show I did with the New York choreography or pardon me, choreographer. In any case, that led to me ultimately becoming an actor. Uh, partly when that choreographer who said, Hey, FYI, like you could have a career at this. Like you have that. You, you're, you're not just, you know, someone who used to dance. You're someone who, who could do this professionally. And I started to really think about that. And I was doing a science degree at the time and then dropped out of that. Well, I didn't drop out. I shortened the degree to go to theater school. And uh, that was sort of the beginning of me deciding to be a professional actor. So when this part came around and the audition came around, I just called my agent. I said, so, uh, are they like, are they going to cast a Canadian or a U.S. guy for this? Cause you know, a lot of times when the U S shows come up and they, the, the bigger roles, they'll, they'll go with the, they'll try and get the namiest actor they can. And that's usually an American. Um, and he goes, not to my knowledge. And I say, cause there's no Toronto or Canadian actor who's got this ballet and can play this guy. So we ended up booking this role. Although there was a moment where they were, I think looking at a Broadway guy, um, which makes sense because the show's built around, being able to shoot dancers from a distance and not having to go head body, head body, like a black swan or something. Um, so the young dancers especially are so like, it's a joke how good they are. Uh, they're, they're heartbreakingly riveting. And, you know, you can tell I love ballet and there were days on set where I was just weeping, watching them do their pas de deux, their different things. And they're shooting them as complete takes without any, there will be edits, but they're shooting them unedited. And uh, anyway, so that's coming out and I'm obviously pretty excited about it. Well, you know who else? You know who else followed the Sean Benson path to stardom? Oh, uh, who? Starting in, in in with a serious ballet background. Let me give you a hint here. Yo, Johnny! <laughs> <laughs> oh my God! I totally forgot that until you just. <laughs> he was a veteran, so Patrick Swayze, veteran oh. of the uh, the uh, ballet scene uh, before he got, got the gig with Dirty Dancing. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, and so you were talking about um, getting into acting like that. And so 
all of us are, well, Toby, Tim, and I are all artists of varying degree. Me, the most failed of all of them. <laughs> Tim, Tim, <laughs> fairly successful, where we were, st- uh, Toby and I were stalking him for a while. Nice. <laughs> but um, I was just wondering, can you, can you think of the point in time when you realized this acting thing was going to work out? Okay, so that's a great question. Um, I, when I was younger, really operated off a burn your boat kind of ethos. So for people who don't know what that means, it's when you're going to a new island to start a new life, the night you get there, you got to burn your boat for fire, for warmth. Because if you don't, the second that tiger leaps out or that, you know, uh, whatever, uh, you're going to paddle back. And so when I left university, the, you know, I had a degree and I had gotten good marks and all I heard one person after the other was you're, you could always fall back on this. And I was like, why would I ever fall back on something that wasn't sustaining enough period? So I never thought like it it was just a closed chapter. And then when I went to theater school, um, I don't want to get too much into that. It's pretty boring, but it was one of these just shy of abusive theater schools where they break you down to build you up, but they didn't know how to build you up. (laughs) <laughs> and I shit you not, like my first two weeks into theater school, the head of the acting program says, like literally today, you have what it takes to play any part of a written. I'm so excited to work with you. They wouldn't let us work with other people. And two years later, they say, you don't know how to act. You can't act. And we don't know what's happened to you. And I'm like, but I've only worked with you. Like I've paid you to learn how to act. And uh, there's there's a lot of reasons why that happened. Um but in any case, it was I, I, I dropped out happily, depressedly, but happily like, oh, well, then you don't know how to do what it is you're pretending to do. So that was a bit of a struggle for me. And I had to get real. And actually, what happened was my parents, who've always been very supportive, they're, they're not wealthy or anything, but they love the arts. And so they're like, how can we help? Can we is there a school in New York that can help this and that? And I remember turning to them and going, no, I actually need to not take a penny from you ever again in my life. And they're like, what? No, we're happy to help. And I said, no, no, no. I need to like be an adult in the world. I was only like 20 or something, but I was like, I need to be an adult in the world who has to like show up for work on time or has to deal with a shit boss or has to like, like find out how to pay rent, even if I don't know how to pay rent. And it really was a great choice to answer your question. Um, it was probably the third play I did in Toronto. It was one called waiting for Lewis that a guy named Fabrizio Filippo, who's just He's, he's creating shows now all, all through Canada. Um, he had written it as a young artist. He thought he was going to play the lead, decided not to. I was lucky enough that that happened. And it's the first time I played something that was complex, uh, challenging, had massive emotional swings, um, carried the play. It was called Waiting for Lewis. I was Lewis. And, uh, and it worked. And I knew that whether I was famous or not, that this was going to be my life. Like there was no um, question, am I good or am I not good? And and that, to be honest, was kind of it. And I got confidence from that where I started turning down plays because I knew I wanted to be on TV. And I had about a year that was pretty fallow where I was just waitering and catering. And I even quit that. And I just didn't have anything to do. But I just said to myself, and it, again, it was the burn your boat idea. I said, whatever I spend most of my time doing is what I am. And if I'm waitering eight hours a day, then I'm a waiter. But I need to be an actor. And I don't know if it was the smartest choice. I took out like a line of credit to live on, but then I booked my first ever TV role and it was a lead in a TV series that ran for two years. So I don't know, like it wasn't the smartest thing to do fiscally. Mm -hmm. It was, it was utter, almost misguided confidence, 
but it was also a totally genuine confidence. And then uh, one day I get the call and, you know, I, I get to do this show and, and that led to pretty much everything ever since, as long as I'm not self-sabotaging. Well, I definitely did not burn that boat. I, I had the, <laughs> the match and I was just like, I blew it out really quickly. I remember, I remember my <laughs> uncle one time cause I was a, I was a young uh, bassist in Portland, Oregon. Nice. Um, and he was, he was talking, he was like, whatever you need to do, learn a trade. Well, I think about it in two ways. You know, I teach acting and I have a lot of young actors ask about that. And yeah. I think for me, it it comes, like, I think it's not a smart thing to burn your boat sometimes. Yeah. And I don't operate that way anymore. Because when I was young, everything lived in an either or paradigm. And as I got older, I realized that and is a really beautiful word. And there's no anxiety around and. and you know, I can live in LA and Toronto. Whereas when I was younger, I was like, do I live in LA or Toronto? Um, but the other thing is, for me, it comes down to like, on a subconscious level, do I believe I can be on that billboard? And if the answer is yes, then I should go work every Joe job I can so I can make a lot of money and enjoy my life while that's happening. But if the answer is no, and my Joe job is a hedge because I know I'll never make it, then I think a leap of faith might be a good thing. Mm-hmm. That's kind of that's how I spin it for my young actors. I go, yeah, if, if you believe you can be on the billboard, do whatever you need to make the money. But if you don't, do some work around that and then get on the fucking billboard. Well, that is fantastic. I'm I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm I'm all, <laughs> ah, all pumped up. I'm like, ah, let's go. Like, I'm buy your my, bait, my family, like family meeting, family meeting. Everybody's like, ah, call your uncle and be like, you got <laughs> yeah. you fucked me. Yeah, no, um, uh, but one quick question about the boys be- uh, before we yeah. go too much. Um, so uh, you're not in season two, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Uh, Samaritan's Purse was on there, yeah. which, uh, uh, and I'm sure you don't know about season three. I hope, hopefully you are, because I, I have to say that my wife said that she hated Ezekiel the most in the show. Ooh, yeah. Wow. <laughs> You know, I got a bit of that feedback. And also, um, I know there was even a, a review or two that touched on that, mm-hmm. um, that around that episode of the the Believe Festival, um, the show deepened a hint. And I'm not saying I believe this because I don't have a clear perspective on it. But the idea being that Ezekiel, his hypocrisy is so rooted in the reality that we see with these priests and mm-hmm. molestation and all this stuff that it it sort of helped make, and so I, I totally get that he he could be perceived as somebody who's the shittiest because he's the closest to being genuinely good, inspires all these people, and then is you know the worst kind of hypocrite. Um, yeah, in terms of uh, that, yeah, Eric Kripke, the showrunner, and I have been chatting a bit, and I, I even cleared like, you know, what can I say about season two? Because when I scheduled another interview, not with you guys, but it was before the season dropped, and he's like, oh no, it's it's all cool. We touch on your world, but um, you know. We're, we're trying to find a way to have you come back in season three. And it's uh, for me, it's something I would have happily done. And then also the exact period of time I was shooting the tiny, pretty thing. So, and by the way, you know, as an actor, who's not Brad Pitt famous, um, it's really nice when like the most popular show in the world you were on is shooting season two and you're not in it and you get to be doing something else equally good yeah. because it's really shitty when you're not working and everybody's like, Hey man, what are you up to from the show? And you're like, <laughs> yeah. 
hey man, I'm uh, you know got some things in the works, and uh, you know, like, and, I can be there. I'm I'm around the corner. Like, do you need me to come there? I'm like, Eric, well, Eric, how long? Yeah, I work with one of the actors now and then. On, on I, I helped him a bit with some movement stuff. So I was up on the set a fair bit, and that would have been really. I'm not above being self-conscious or self-pitying in periods where I'm not shooting a ton. And uh, it was really nice to be able to be relaxed and confident because uh, again, something, yeah, yeah, exactly. So uh, do you guys like long answers? Cause I, I, you know, <laughs> I host um, a, a karate thing and sometimes guys get really long winded and sometimes it's interesting. No, 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 you're doing fantastic. Okay. Um, yeah. I was just gonna say the is it just a good thing you didn't show up every day dressed as Ezekiel. Oh my god, <laughs> like, hey guys, that would have been great. <laughs> what's up? Anyone want to get coffee? Oh god. That would have been great. Oh, hey guys. Hey guys. Hey, remember remember that one time? And you tell like the one half joke you had at the craft table. Yeah. <laughs> Did you have a question, Toby? Oh, I was thinking the burning your boat thing. So a while back, there was this bass guitar that Bob played, and our friend Colin owned the bass. <laughs> and, and one day I go to him, I go, uh, uh, well, so he had a, it was an electric bass, an acoustic bass with an electric pickup. And I go, hey, do you still have that electric bass? I want to use it. He's like, well, I have it, but it's no longer electric. I'm like, well, could, you know, what happened? He took out the, the pickup. I'm like, well, couldn't you put the pickup back in? He's like, not the way that I took it out. Oh, yeah. He just got fucked this thing. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Um, okay, let's continue on. First, let's thank our sponsor for this episode. Tim, you're sponsoring us once again. <laughs> yep. <Yeah>. Please visit <laughs> TimMonsters.com. Tim, do you have any new pieces online? Uh, not since I put all the Mads for Mystery Science Theater stuff up there. That's the most recent stuff I've added. But I have some more stuff coming soon. And in fact, we have a special um gift going out to Toronto, Ontario. One screen print of three the hard way. You can get your own at timmonsters.com. Hopefully. I mean, who knows when you're going to be back in Toronto, but it'll be there waiting for you. I love it. Mid mid October, I'm back. Great, and then you can just be walking back and forth with it above your head. (laughs) I'll I'll just have yeah, I'll have my (laughs) yeah, a Lloyd Dobber it outside everybody's (laughs) house. But I think it's going to look great. Uh, Tim is a very talented artist. Please go to his website and buy something. All right. Toby, let's play the trailer. Yeah, I just want to preface this. If you hear swishing, it's probably a surfboard. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot of swishing. If you're punching, it's probably Patrick Swayze. (laughs) (laughs) The ultimate rush is nothing that comes close to it. Not even sex. We are the ex-president. Total commitment. Real thin line life and death. I'm not a It's not tragic to die doing what you love. You want the ultimate, you gotta be willing to pay the ultimate price. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen, and please don't forget to vote. You want to nail the bank robbers and be a big hero? Definitely. The ex-presidents are servers. You're trying to tell me the FBI is going to pay me to learn to surf. Fear causes hesitation. Hesitation will cause your worst fears to come true. You take it to the edge. Past it. This is going to be a great day, Johnny. 
taxpayers of Lancaster, Utah, they knew that they were paying a federal agent to surf and pick up girls. Babes. Make fun. The correct term is babes, sir. Adios, amigos! So, Sean, can you tell us why you chose Point Break? Um, unironically, this is maybe my favorite movie. It's a sort of coin toss between this and Singing in the Rain and Taxi Driver and recently Jojo Rabbit. I'm blown away by that movie. I, I really so it was my, it was It's just my mom's German and was born in the Nazi era in Germany. And my connection to that whole world is, is it's deep. And my mom just passed when that came out. It's, it's a very deep movie for me, but you know, I remember when I was young, like I had the long hair and all that, but I turned the corner, so to speak. And I remember a couple of buddies one weekend, it was, uh, whatever the, the Super Bowl weekend is, it was never a thing I cared about, but they were like, Hey, have you ever seen point break? And I was like, well, no, you know, and as you guys remember, um, and I'm, I think I might be a kiss older than you guys, but, uh, things didn't happen all in one day back then. Right. Like even grunge, I remember being down in Windsor and somebody playing me smells like teen spirit in a car and me being blown away and Guelph, like nobody heard that music till three months later. It was a real gun appetite for destruction did the same thing. The guns and roses, like it rolled out and didn't become famous till the third single. So point break was a bit like that for me where it had come and gone in the theaters without me even having heard of it. And then, so somebody uh, said, Oh my God, we're fucking running this Benson. I can't believe you haven't seen this. And so they put it on. And to be honest, it was one of those perfect storms of like, Oh my God, I have friends for the first time in high school. Um, Oh my God, this movie feels like it's reflecting a world that I've always thought I'm a part of. And to give you a little background on that, I grew up in the BMX culture. And uh, like, I remember at a corner store in 1984, looking at a magazine called Freestyling, and it was the first issue. And I didn't know it was the first issue. I didn't care. I just was like, what's that? And I bought it and ended up getting BMXs. And my brother and I used to order bikes from Van Nuys out of the back of the freestyling Nighthawk BMX and different companies. And we'd get our Skyway Tough Twos and all that. And that whole BMX scene was all based around that Venice vibe. Um, I didn't, I touched on the skateboard thing, but I didn't know about Dogtown or any of that stuff. But that whole neon 80s beach vibe. And when you think about Point Break, it's an 80s movie. I mean, it was released in 91, but she started developing it in 86. That's an 80s movie to the core. Uh, and probably the only difference between it and all the other 80s movies is that Catherine directed it. So it has a female gaze and an, and she's also got a painting background. So it has, it's more stylistic, but it's not that typical dude, tit scene, kind of 80s thriller vibe. It's a, it's a totally different style, thanks to her. But I think that's what hooked me so much was the action, the adventure. It's a time in my life when I was connecting with other people, especially dudes, for the first time uh, outside of my summer camp. So, And the movie's fucking great. It holds up. Like, look at Roger Ebert, right? He gave it three and a half stars and for all the right reasons, you know? And I was, I was 
checking out the review of the new point break on Roger Ebert, which was not written by him. He'd passed by then. And that reviewer is like, and the first one being so banal and the first one being so crap. And I was like, what? Oh, yeah. that's not Ebert. Cause Ebert mm-hmm. understood movies within their genre. And he's mm-hmm. one of the re- few reviewers who really got movies that way. Um, mm-hmm. Side note, the first time I ever wept when a celebrity died was Roger Ebert. Uh, oh, interesting. I used to every Thursday night at midnight go online or before that go to the the paper to find his reviews and read them. And they're just little essays of film appreciation. And I remember one day when he died, I didn't think much about it. And then I realized a month later I missed him. Yeah, it was a really deep thing. Yeah, Toby and I were lucky enough to live outside of Chicagoland. So we saw Siskel and Ebert like every whatever, every weekend. Yeah. And so we got to see that. Right on. Tim how about you? What do you remember about Point Break? Uh, well, I mean, I've revisited it a number of times. I actually screened it multiple times uh, in my programming around the Twin Cities. Um, oh, yeah. We, we did a bunch of Swayze, Swayze Days of Summer at the Mall of America where we did we raised money for uh, pancreatic cancer. So we screened it at one point back like year, a few years ago. Uh, and I I had seen it somewhat recently at that point, but like, I just, yeah, this, I love this movie so much. But I guess when I think about it, like usually my, the first thing that pops in my brain is that foot chase scene. Like I just love that scene so much and how it's shot and like the the energy of that. Um, so that's usually what pops into my head when I think about this movie. But yeah. Interestingly enough, not with Patrick Swayze with his stunt yeah. double yep. running the whole time. He yeah. was, Patrick was out uh, promoting Ghost at the yep. time. Really, he didn't shoot yeah. that bit. That's that he didn't shoot that sequence because he he wanted to do all of all of his own stunts as much as possible. But that sequence was shot while he was promoting Ghost, so they actually had his stunt double wearing the mask for that whole that whole foot chase. Interesting. <laughs> How about you, Toby? Interesting thing about, uh, um, about Patrick Swayze stunts when he did uh, Dirty Dancing. Um, he the scene at the end where he jumps off the stage, like he damn near broke his knee knees doing that like mm-hmm. he was in intense pain and he just the director's like do it again do it again do it again and he just kept doing it um i got a lot of respect for swayze uh, oh yeah i love i love time. swayze yes yeah love it it's funny because i was just having a chat with my director of this current film i'm about to do and she was asking me to send her photos of my build and my height and weight for the stunt person because there's a scene where i get punched uh by a young actor in the film and we're couple weeks away from shooting it and i said by the way you know I'm, I'm pretty comfortable with a lot of this stuff and she goes yeah but i'd really hate for him to clock you because it's his i think it's his first or second film and i was like oh right and i thought about all those times where i used to think doing your own stunts meant something mm. and depending on the shot it doesn't like mm-hmm. every guy actor i know hits 35 and goes yeah i'm really happy there's a stunt guy here today <laughs> because A, you don't just jump down the thing once. B, you're not doing it with the adrenaline of the actual chase with guns. So mm-hmm. you're doing it 30 times in a row. So I totally respect that. But I'm definitely not a do-your-own-stunts kind of guy anymore. Right. You know what's interesting about uh, Patrick Swayze? So so he gets hurt doing that in Dirty Dancing. He also got hurt doing the football scene on the beach. Mm-hmm. But it, they were really worried about him skydiving the whole time. And he was completely fine though. <laughs> the whole time yep. he did that. So. Well, they, had, they couldn't get the insurance to cover him. If right. he was skydiving. Mm-hmm. So they did keep him from skydiving. Well, even though he was like obsessively skydiving throughout the shooting point break. And yeah. then with part of the promises that the last shot they would do was him on camera, skydiving out of the plane. That one shot, when you see him fall out and the camera follows him, 
Um, and that was part of the promise. But the funny thing is he was saying is that like he never got hurt or anything skydiving, but he was doing a lot of the, his own surfing, which they were insuring him for. And he almost died almost 10 times <laughs> over yeah. doing the surfing scenes where he he uh, bruised his sternum super bad and broke some ribs and like yeah. he, like the waves like he really almost like he messed himself up really bad surfing. But the insurance were like had no problem with him surfing. <laughs> so have you guys surfed? I've never no. no. Okay, no. so I moved out to California in 2003, lived there for eight years continuously. And the first thing I did, like I bought a surfboard that week and I got okay at it. And when I say okay, I mean like barely okay, but can ride. Um, it's fucking intense. Like yeah. when you get back, I remember when I started to be able to ride, uh, oh, by the way, FYI, have surfed Latigo, which uh, we know is highlighted in the film with, uh, that's where he runs into Bunker and Anthony. And oh, yeah, yeah. Um, that's Latigo. So I remember a buddy of mine was like, hey, you're starting to get all right, surfing sunset. And uh, the beach break at Venice is a little tough because it's a beach break. But anyways, uh, he goes, let's go up to uh, to Doom. So we go up a little bit north. And the waves were up about two, three feet from what I was used to. The impact when that extra two or three feet of water would fuck me up, like it was, I'd just gasp for hours, maybe catch a wave next day, maybe two, but I'm shocked how many people surf given how hard it is to actually surf. <laughs> and every like foot increase in the wave, I found to be an exponential increase in the power of the wave, which makes sense. Yeah. Well, I've always uh, stayed to the middle of the country. No oceans, <laughs> no, no surf. No so what could possibly go wrong? Exactly. Like, plenty of land all around me yeah. in case I fall down. I'm not going to drown. Avoid tornadoes. I think yeah. you're pretty good in the middle of the country. Yeah. So. Yeah. All right, Toby, let's segue. All right, Tim, what did we watch this week? The 1991 classic Point Break, uh, as IMDb describes it, is an FBI agent goes undercover to catch a gang of surfers who may be bank robbers. Uh, like we were saying before, it's directed by the incredibly talented Catherine Bigelow. Ooh. And written by Rich King and W. Peter Ilf. Uh, it stars Patrick Swayze, Keanu Reeves, Gary Busey, among a bunch of other great cast members. Uh, its budget was $24 million. Uh, its opening weekend was about $8.5 million. It went on to gross a little over $43 million in the U.S. And then cumulative worldwide was about $83.5 million. So uh, it was a pretty huge hit. Uh, 1991, we saw Terminator 2 Judgment Day for the, the, as the number one film, but <laughs> directed by James Cameron, also a producer on this. And uh, also, and so then Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, Beauty and the Beast, Hook, Silence of the Lambs, JFK, The Addams Family, Cape Fear, Hot Shots, City Slickers, Sleeping with the Enemy, Backdraft, Fried Green Tomatoes, Star Trek for the Undiscovered Country, Six. Or sorry, sorry, six. Sorry, uh, Father of the Bride, Naked Gun, two and a half, and then at seventeen came in Point Break. Ooh, can't keep Ooh. up with Leslie Nielsen. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <Nope>. <laughs> but oh, uh, what's interesting is that the, that Point Break came a week after Terminator Two came out. Yeah, which is interesting because James Cameron comes out with Terminator Two, and his wife at yep. the time, I believe they're sold together. Yeah, comes out with Point Break, and also Robin Hood. This is an interesting uh, thing. It came up last 
on the last episode or so, we are talking about accents and stuff. Mm. And in particular, Robin Hood and Kevin Costner's much of a lying thing. So <laughs> I have a question. So for you, as like maybe you're not at the Kevin Costner level just yet, like is there, um, is there a little, I guess, uh, what's the correct term? Uh, forgiveness for kind of butchering an accent? Okay, so this is an interesting question. Uh, that accent's dreadful. I am Robin of Luxley. Um, he, you know, I have turned a corner. And so when I was at theater school, we were taught by one teacher that it was so important to critique each other's work and it was fundamental to honing our art. And we just became the shittiest group of people towards one another you could mm. possibly imagine. It was, we, we relish, it was like one of those experiments, you know, where you get to buzz the person in the other room and they scream, like we were given the impunity to punish. And I was doing a, a show with a company called Soul Pepper and the, the head of the theater company said, you're going to get tickets to all the shows in town being a part of this company. And after the show, you will say, great job, period. Because these people just gave their heart and their soul for three hours. And it's not time for your 23-year-old self to critique them with what wisdom you don't think. Like you, you don't even have any perspective on what goes into this. And it's so easy to sit and judge. At, and even when they ask you out for coffee the next day and say, what would you really think? You tell them it was great. And if it's your best friend three weeks later after the show's closed, maybe. But I really took that to heart. Because nobody wakes up and tries to do something bad. No. Nobody. And I do not publicly critique. I don't even privately critique anybody. So yeah, I have, a, I have such a forgiveness for any flaws that come up. I personally know what I think of it. I know. Yeah. And th that's the one thing that my theater school got wrong. I know exactly what I think is good or bad. But I don't need to shit on other actors. You know, I directed a film. And I directed it because I thought that some of the films being made as indies in Canada weren't good. And I was like, well, I'm going to fucking do way better. So then I pulled together a crew and a cast and I produce and direct with two partners, Emily Coots and Kelly McCormick. And we create this project and it was solid. It was a good bit of work, but it wasn't excellent. And I went, okay, first off, now I understand how casting works. Nobody's judged on their acting in an audition. If any actors are listening to this, just go and be yourself and be full. Don't worry about getting it right. Cause nobody watches and goes, Ooh, if only they'd done that line better, it doesn't mm. work that way. It's, it's all energy and what you bring as a, as a broad person, like a broad sense of a person who can maybe tell the story with this flavor or this flavor. Um, so I learned so many things that made it impossible for me to critique uh, and even go into self pity. You know, there's so many times I don't get the gig and then it's like, they loved you, but, and I'm like, I know that's true. And often mm -hmm. that'll come back around, you know, where you get an offer to do a project that you didn't even audition for. Cause it was true. Um, but in any case, uh, I, I have such a wide berth. I love everybody trying to put their life on the line to create good work. And sometimes it doesn't come together. Uh, I was thinking like as a musician, I don't know. And I've done improv too. Um, there are many, many times when I have felt completely empty after a show. Like I just gave it my all and maybe it was a great show like on stage and maybe the crowd dug it, but I feel empty afterwards. And um, just curious how you feel 
you know, we, everyone loves your work in the boys, you know, like, but like, how do you feel about, not about your work, but how do you feel inside when the work's done? Like, how do you feel empty, not even about the work, but empty, totally. It's, uh, I, I, I have a come down. Um, it's from a lot of things, you know, I engage and connect so intimately with these, you know, I don't call them characters, but I know everyone else does. It's me. Like it's a version of myself. Like, for Ezekiel, man, I spent a month because, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm shown in the first episode, the second and the fourth, but the fifth is really his episode. So um, I'm Ezekiel for that period. And that was actually the year my mom had passed. So we weren't looking for any other work. We were just really happy to have this gig for the summer and not worry about anything else. I was listening to uh, Brother Love's Travel and Salvation show every morning. I was watching, you know, Bieber's Preacher and all these other preachers and like, I'm starting to feel and become this thing. Um, it's me. There's no character. And then one day you're done your last scene and they go, great. That's a wrap on Sean. Everybody gives you a hug. You know, there's a wrap party and you just exit and you're walking down the street and it's like, <sighs> okay. You know? And I mean, I don't drink, I don't do drugs. I don't smoke. So you just kind of like, well, okay, well that, part of me now no longer has a place to go, but it's still here. Like it, it, these, these characters don't go away, they fade, mm-hmm. but they're relationships, but it's a relationship with an aspect of myself. And so I tend to feel quite empty for a period. I couldn't watch the original, the first season of the boys for some time. And it was because of the year in which we shot, it was a difficult year for me emotionally, but also there's no magic if I'm watching it a month later and it's just, Oh, there's, Tony, there's Jack. It's like, no, I want space so I can actually watch Homelander, you yeah. know? Um, and that did happen for me because I haven't seen season two yet, but season one, I'm just like, holy shit, I get why everybody loves this. But yeah, so long answer to the question is I feel very empty often, like 90% of the time. And a lot of it too, by the way, I used to play in a band in LA is that, you know, you're up on stage at the House of Blues and you hit the note and everyone goes, Rah! and then four hours later, nobody gives a shit what you're doing. <laughs> like, wait, what happened to this? And I get, you know, I, I, I got sober from booze and drugs and, and there's, there's a reason why a lot of us get hooked on this stuff, which is it feels the way we think the acting should feel. But for a while, like until a guy like me crashes and burns, it, it's got a, uh, it feels like it's more sustainable than actually even acting. Cause you can just call a guy and he drops off that feeling in a baggie. Yeah. <laughs> Well, dang, Sean. Now I feel totally terrible for asking that Robin Hood question. <laughs> but no, but 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 all seriousness, like I totally, mm. um, I totally get it. Like, but in some ways, doing this podcast is 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 my artistic outlet now. And sometimes it's really easy where you're just like, for whatever, like. I'm sure Kevin's fine. He's not going to be uh, upset because he's not going to listen to this. And I, and I'm, I'm sorry, Kevin, if if you. <laughs> listen to it we're a little bit i I take that back because i would hate somebody just to say like anything bad about like the like this podcast i you know it like toby had to like had to hear me like my text messages this week going like no one's listening you know like that kind of stuff you know like you have to kind of power through it too and that's like the hardest thing to do is like to keep on you know getting up there you know well you know hannah gadsby touched on this with her uh, Netflix special, but you know, generally humor is based on punching up 
And so us making fun of Costner, technically who cares? But what yeah. she touched on is what if humor doesn't have that? What if jokes don't have to have a fall person? And I don't know what the answer to that is. You know, I know that as I hit my 40s and I got a couple of buddies who haven't grown out of the ribbon each other stage, I'm like, I don't what, yeah. what, what I don't know. Taking the piss doesn't seem like a great way to relate the way it did when we were 23 and discovering right. um, sarcasm mixed with nuance and referentialism and all that stuff. Like, so I don't know. I mean, I still fall into it and I don't even mind it too much, but I try not to, especially with actors who I'd call my level or below, i.e. punching same or down. Like, I'm not sure what the point is. Um, and also I just don't want to be critiqued i think also like if, if I'm, a, I'm a huge fan of movies and stuff and i watch a lot of like quote-unquote bad movies but usually even like the bad movies like you understand that these people are trying their hardest to make this piece of art yeah. and like you, there's always something something interesting that's being being come that comes out of even like the most trashy you know b films like there's always something i can take away like that was kind of an amazing risk that they took or this weird chances they took that like something very interesting out of it like i'm always looking for something positive even if the movie itself doesn't quite work you just know that like this this making movie the fact that movies even get made is a crazy thing to me that like it's really hard to do like there's so many people on the same try to get them on the same boat to like make this piece of art together is like i've done some effects work on you know some low budget stuff but like it's just like it's it's a it seems to me that's a miracle that movies get made so like it's a miracle it's It's a miracle (laughs) it's It's a miracle miracle that Point Break was made because <laughs> Peter King or whoever the producer was just hanging out at the beach one day, like watching surfers, and just like, oh, like, what if an FBI agent infiltrated a surfer group? Yeah. That would be an interesting movie. And then he found some like uh, waiter who wrote screenplays and just like told him and paid him six thousand dollars. Oh my uh, w. god, W. Peter Illift to write this thing, and so they that wrote is it. Fantastic, right? Like, and so it's, that's just. It, like you said, it's it's crazy that it is. I wish I wish I could just have that kind of juice, just to be like, you know what? Here's just some crazy thing I thought about. You know, <laughs> so this is my goal: is to you know get on successful enough projects as an actor that I then have the ability to move pieces as a producer, but to have like a think tank, mm-hmm. like to just call up the young, exciting writer who's not there yet and be like you got two weeks, go do this thing about this and then build the structure around what that could be like. And most of them, you know, won't be great, but then you'll find those gems. Pivoting Mm -hmm. back to what you said, Tim, um, this is actually, so in 1993 or four, it might've been five even, I decided I wanted to be an actor. And my girlfriend at the time was in the sorority and her sorority sisters were like, oh my God, what? Like, that's so cool. Who are your favorite actors? De Niro, Pacino and... I went, no, Keanu Reeves. And they they looked at me like I was either an asshole for trying to make fun of them, which I wasn't, or an idiot for saying Keanu Reeves. And I was like, no, I'm not kidding. Like, And I don't even know if Speed had come out yet. I mean, I know it's 94, but I don't yeah. remember. Let's say it had. And they're like the Bill and Ted's guy. And I'm like, well, Bill and Ted's is awesome. But also... <laughs> Point Break, and let's say Speed, but you've also got River's Edge. You've got my own private Idaho. Yeah. I mean, then he went and did Much Ado, all during this early period. And unironically, I was like, Keanu's my favorite actor. And then it was years later when The Matrix came out that everyone kind of got it. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And even with speed, I mean, you know, Catherine Bigel is really uh, well regarded for having chosen him, this ultra feminine actor, to be her action hero when no one had considered him that before. Mm-hmm. And I just also going back to being bad or good. The one critique that a movie or an actor can get, which I do kind of like, it's not that it's bad, it's that it's so middling. Mm-hmm. Like when a movie doesn't take a swing and then is bad. Yeah. Or when a, mm-hmm. And the one thing with Keanu, I actually sent a, a director friend of mine, uh, his name's Craig McNeil. And actually the last time I was shooting a series in Winnipeg, he uh, was the director of Candle Cove, Channel Zero. Oh, yeah, he yeah, di- yeah. Yeah, he directed all those. And so... Him and I are point break, like, you know, he's Utah and I'm Bodhi. And uh, so I sent him the scene where he's like, are you mad? Are you mad? Yeah, fuck him out. Good. Then why don't you take the since you're not dead yet? And I'm like, that is such a big swing. Mm-hmm. And that is why people could make fun of Keanu in the early days. But nobody was doing that. And especially in this day and age, every, now it's ironic because John Wick's pretty mumbly, but everybody just goes in for mumblecore now. And when you watch a young actor like that, who's willing to swing for the fences, not just on every line, sometimes on every syllable within a word, you're like, hey, I don't know if that's good or bad, but I fucking love it. Mm-hmm. And I just think that you, if you don't like Keanu, you at least don't like it because he's doing something. Strange I mean, too many thing in the circle K. <laughs> <laughs> and now Keanu is a North American treasure. He's a treasure. Yeah. Well, yeah. we, we, he was in that. Uh, we loved him in that. Um, what was that rom com we watched with him? Oh, with Randall Park and Ellie Wong on Netflix. Uh, yeah. Will you be my baby? Oh, Did that was great. That, Sean? Oh. I haven't seen that. No. Oh, oh. you got it, Sean. It's yeah. You're in quarantine. Brilliant. He yeah. makes a. He makes a. Uh, um. He makes an entrance, and it's amazing. So, okay, awesome. Uh, I, I love the fact that like the, the same year he did Point Break, he did Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey and, and My Own Private Idaho. Like, yep. It was three completely different films, and they're all so good, I think. Yeah. You know, it's funny. At the end of Point Break, he shows up with his, uh, with his Bill and Ted hair. It's <laughs> yeah. actually his mm-hmm. real hair. Like, they, yeah. they shot that like six months later in Oregon or whatever, and Patrick Swayze had, had his hair cut yep. because he's mm-hmm. doing another one and they just left it because they thought it was a great way to show how they've kind of moved and yeah. over time. It's so good. It's so yeah. good. And I, you know, my jujitsu coach in LA is a guy named Jean-Jacques Machado and the Machado brothers all coached Keanu for John Wick. And mm-hmm. I mean, there's no bad stories about Keanu out there, like not yeah. one. And they're just like, you've never met a nicer, more supportive, more intensely engaged with learning how to do the stuff actor. And, uh, you know, I'm so happy to hear that. That training footage from the John Wick movies is <sighs> mind blowing. Like, mind man, blowing. he just gives it his all. It's crazy. Oh, yeah. yeah, he probably would have got 100% at Quantico, just like uh, Johnny Utah did. <laughs> 100%. <laughs> in, in, in the rain, like, I don't know. It's like, don't you think in Quantico, they're like, hey, it's rainy. Let's not just like be, let's, let's, let's wait a day to do your test. But no, not. <laughs> Not point break. Uh, Tim, do you have any other production facts? Uh, Yeah, I guess uh, Gary Busey, previous to this movie, had had a horrible motorcycle accident, and he had brain surgery, almost died. Um, And so this was his first film back. But man, he is just like on firing on all cylinders. He's like just going for it, Uh, which is crazy because he talks about in the behind the scenes, he basically was like pronounced dead. Uh, previous to this movie which is insane so, can i just play this clip of Busey here this is i loved this clip it's like they're like Busey go wild mm-hmm. <laughs> 
This Calvin and Hobbes is funny. Oranges, sir. Take some oranges. You want some oranges? No. 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 We got a lot. We got a lot. Dollar, sir. No thanks. Good luck. For his turkey cemetery. Oh, it's time for lunch. Right around that corner, there is a sandwich shop. They sell meatball sandwiches. Best I've ever tasted. Would you go get me two? Two. Come on, partner. <laughs> Thank you. Utah, give me two. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh man. Uh, I don't blame him. Sometimes you just need to eat two sandwiches instead right? of the fries and stuff, right? But I cut the part where he's like, you should have got me three. <laughs> <laughs> In the meantime, they pull up and they're yeah. robbing the bank. Oh, that was a great scene, by the oh, way. Oh, my God. So good. All right. Go, we, anyways, go ahead. I say we did a screening of Point Break at the uh, Alamo, and we did a special menu of uh, meatball sandwiches, and we had a, oh. a special. If you got, if give me two, Utah, you got a, mm. like, a deal to get two sandwiches. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so the other interesting thing we were talking about like him uh Swayze hurting his knee in that fo- football sequence he like blew out his knee so bad that it, like it swelled up like they said like twice the size and he just had him drain it and so that he could just get right back in there and just was like and he was physically like tackling people and was like trying to encourage mm. them to like just fully play football uh which is he was just like just into it i guess he was like just pumping everybody up uh the other guys in his gang were like you know like you probably know that they were professional surfers so that's they that's how they got a lot of those shots is that those guys were like mm. legit surfers um, to do a lot of that stunts and a lot of those shots that they were doing in wide. And then the ending shot when uh, Swayze goes down in that giant wave, they said that that was like a, was like a four year like wave that they were like, they just happened to be there for. Um, and it was like a, it was in Waimea. Uh, Waimea. Yeah. yeah. Um, and they, they got this, like, one of like the big, like big surf surfer guys, like one of the professional guys, his name is Derek Dorner. Uh, he, they hired him to do that shot, but he has been, you know, basically trained his entire life to ride these waves and they had to like pay him to f- purposely fall in that giant wave which was like i guess was wow. really a, hor- a horrifying and difficult shot to get but they did it um and yeah it's it's mind-blowing with think- seeing that like him go down in that wave and just mm-hmm. like the fact that he didn't die is yeah that's nuts and i also heard that they really pissed everyone off because they kept all the other surfers from yeah. going out there so you had all these guys like oh look at this big yeah. wave and yeah they're, right they're there that. for that wave and they're like yep yeah, nobody can go in the water he's picking the fourth mm. next the fourth next wave so everybody had to stay back so they could get that shot and everybody was like super mad about it but i guess he also like invented or like it was like one of the pioneers in tow-in surfing where you ah. tow in the person in like a jet ski which is how they did a lot of the shots they would t- oh, tow bet. the actors in and then do those shots um, which is pretty cool. And then the, uh, like I was saying, Swayze did that one skydive shot, but the, a lot of the skydiving shots, they built these crazy rigs where they would be like on this like pole on their waist, like hovering above a giant fan. And then they kept the camera floating to, to make sure that you could get those kind of momentum oh, so kind of cool. shots. Like, I it, love it, filmmaking. It's so cool, like how they yeah. figured that out. And then the foot chase scene, they built a spe- special like pole camera rig. It was like kind of a steady cam, but it wasn't because they could get it like, into spaces and push it over fences and stuff to get like those shots that can continued, um, which is really cool that they like the cameraman really did some amazing inventive work on how they were building these rigs to get the frenetic energy that they wanted to give that adrenaline to these action sequences, which I feel absolutely works and it holds up still like it's so well done. Well, so. this is one thing I just want to throw out to the, you know, younger filmmakers don't totally understand this. Like, 
this these rigs didn't just exist. No. Like right now, you could shoot that scene on an iPhone with a little, uh, you know, sort of gyroscopic three hundred dollar thing you buy at a camera store. And uh, back then, it was like, how do we solve this to get this? Yeah. And I, I love. I came up with a little phrase doing professional photography, but the solution is the style. Yeah. Like how you solve it becomes the style, and then that becomes a new thing. And then ten years later, everyone's like, so what? And you're like, yeah, but we didn't have what you had now. We didn't make it up. I love that, like hearing about how they do, what people would do this kind of stuff, especially like low budget filmmaking. Like, like I always like point back to like the original Evil Dead film when like Sam Raimi and like they were like literally out in this cabin shooting stuff in the woods, and there's like these like kind of POV camera shots of like the demonite going through the woods, and they literally had a 16 millimeter camera that they just mounted to a two by four, and each one of them held on the other side, and they just ran through the woods with the camera, and that's how they got that iconic shot that people have mimicked to this day. And it's just like, it's just inventive, like figuring out ways to make, mm-hmm. make it work. Just so awesome. Uh, the last bit of production thing you were, you were mentioning that the foot chase was not Swayze. It was his stunt double in the, in the mask in the, on the original poster. There's only three bank robbers in the shot on the poster. It was again, because Swayze didn't show up to the photo shoot that day. He was doing stuff with ghost again. And so one of the other guys had to wear, they was superimposed Swayze's mask onto his body after the fact because they realized that they needed that in the poster. So there's only three three people on the poster, which is funny. But that's pretty much all the main stuff I found. Most of most of the behind the scenes I uh, that I was like watching and researching was them just talking about the spirituality of surfing and how like intense they got everybody on set got oh. into surfing and just kind of was like just living that lifestyle for a lot of the shoot, which is pretty pretty crazy. Led by Patrick Swayze, right? He was yeah he was sensei. He was Bodhi. He's Absolutely. The, yeah. He, yeah. Well, this for me, going back to your question, is fundamentally why the movie works, is that there is an undercurrent there that I think still is legit. Like, I've, I've been doing, like, literal, like, martial arts and zen and, and, and all this stuff for almost 30 years now, and the movie still holds up with what he's saying. Because I was reading a review the other day, just sort of boning up for this, and the reviewer was talking about how crap an FBI agent Keanu is. Now, that's arguable. However, what the reviewer totally misses is why Keanu would start forsaking his former or, you know, career for this magnetism. And again, any artist or or human who's ever like, I'll just use my own experience, left everything you know, packed everything up, driven down to this little place called California, Los Angeles, and said, I am drawn to this world, this life, this circus, and I'm going to give up everything, every girlfriend I've known, every uh, possibility at success I've ever known, and I'm going to stake it on something ephemeral and vague. It's like him realizing what surfing is. Yeah. And I, I, the reviewer totally missed. They, I, I don't think they'd be a fun person to hang out with <laughs> because I think they missed the idea that something can be magical and actually make you change your course. So, so I have a question, like, like kind of a follow up. So when, when Johnny Utah goes into Tyler's whatever sandwich shop and tells her that whole story about like his, like, oh, I went to college to be a football star. Do you think that was all true except for the point of his parents dying in the car crash? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, he's, he's got the knee injury, right? Yeah. (laughs) Uh, But it's it's mostly true because you have to tell most, most, uh, uh, the more true truth that you tell, it's yeah. better. That's it. One thing I do love about Point Break is that you would think at this time period that 
that the casting would have been flipped that Swayze would have been the FBI agent and that 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 Keanu would have been the surfer because of Bill and Ted and all that kind of stuff and like his persona that people kind of associated him with and I think it's brilliant casting in how they mm. they like I think those two are so perfect in each of the roles like the the stiffness of Keanu in his FBI kind of like like the his mannerisms and how what the performance he gives in this movie I think is really really awesome but then like Swayze is just like so perfect like i feel like like this movie is totally built around swayze like just he's such a believable character and then you can just totally believe it that he was just living that during the set like 100 percent. i seem to even remember like my friends and i having like a simply like when the when they're around the bonfire and talking about like all the all those people in the and the metal boxes going back and forth and all that kind of stuff i definitely remember having those sort of young you know, alcohol or whatever fueled conversations <laughs> with everyone. Like, we gotta go live, guys. Yeah. We gotta go live. It's not like we gotta go find some place with stock options, you guys. Like, <laughs> let's, let's, let's do this. <laughs> well, what's cool too is that everybody played the surfer like Sean Penn. Like he created the paradigm of what a surfer is. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the brilliant things about Swayze in that performance that, again, for my money, like could have, should have been Oscar nominated because his age, like him being older grounds it in something that has a, a a flow beneath what could be first year college, first time you smoke a joint. And it's not because it's a way he's living. And it goes back to the idea of knowledge versus wisdom. Everybody who smoked a joint in first year knows what he's saying as a concept, Mm -hmm. but when you're 37 or 38 and you are this person in search of the endless summer, that's actually who you are. Mm-hmm. And that was what was so brilliant about him being a little older than I think you might typically cast a role like that. You yeah. know, that's interesting because he was also a little bit older than all of his, all the other men that were part of his crew. He was obviously their leader, mm-hmm. their role model as well. And I just didn't realize that until you mentioned that. Well, yeah, go ahead, Tim. It, it, I would say his charisma and his like his just like his energy in this movie just makes like it's so believable. You could totally understand the infectious nature of that character and like how you would just be like sucked into that world by him. Like just like it's such a he's such a draw on screen. Every time he's oh. talking, you just can't you can't help but like be drawn into it. it it's so after, great. After the fight we talked about at Latigo with uh, Bunker and Anthony Kiedis and the other guys when he's walking along. PCH there and he's got the surfboard and Keanu and he's like, you didn't back down. You got that look, you're a bulldog, Utah, that kind of thing. And then when Johnny looks at him and goes, oh, are you going to start chanting? <laughs> and the way he laughs and goes, I might, yeah. it's not like toe to toe shitty. Yeah. It's like, there's things you don't understand yet, Johnny. Yeah. And chanting actually yeah. isn't not part of it. And it's funny because there's a young actor named Luke Humphrey. He's 33. He's a excellent buddy of mine and we do jujitsu almost every day together we we covid bubbled so -hmm. we could keep training and i was sitting with him the other day and i just looked at him and i went you do realize if we were the same age we couldn't be friends right and he just laughed his ass off for five minutes he goes oh absolutely not because (laughs) if we were the same age we'd be trying to occupy the same space but with swayze here in terms of wisdom he gets to go yeah maybe i'll chant man maybe i won't and it's not a so that way they can fit and yeah. that's the one thing that he provides as that uh, father guru figure. It's beautiful. It's yeah. genuinely beautiful. 
I just know that if I was Johnny Utah in that scene, I would just been like, wherever you want to go, Bodie, I'm following <laughs> you. Even now, it's a good thing I'm quarantined because I, if I run into Bodie right now, <laughs> like, I'm taking my Pacifica and I'm putting, uh, yeah, I'm buying a surfboard. I'm out, you know. Just <laughs> oh man. Um, so we already started kind of talking about the the movie in general. The on Rotten Tomatoes, it has kind of a midland um, percentage. It's so. The, cons- the critics' consensus is absurd, over the top, and awfully, often wildly entertaining. Point Break is here to show you that the human spirit is still alive. Critics' uh, tomato meter is 69%. Um, the audience score is 79%. I think it's obvious from this is like we got something different out of the movie than mm-hmm. a lot of the critics did. So we've already been talking a lot about um, what we thought about the movie. So I just kind of want to maybe transition transition to a couple topics the first one we kind of talked about Catherine bigelow the director which if we're playing six degrees of sean benson she was also sean's director in a little movie called k19 the Widowmaker. yes correct? she was and by the way fun fact uh i shot a movie last year was it last year sometime around then maybe two years ago with erickson core who directed the remake <laughs> I did a film called Togo for Disney about the, oh yeah uh, with uh, Willem Dafoe. That's right, and yep. so Erickson shot the. I by the way haven't seen the remake, but uh, there's a remake. A, there's a there's a 2015 Point Break that he directed, oh, and it's yeah, like two okay, percent yes, on yeah. oh, Rotten wow. Tomatoes. Um, but yeah, so I was um, auditioning for this movie called K19, and uh, it was uh, my second audition, and I walk in, and there's just this stunning woman about six feet tall and she starts giving me notes and I, I, I didn't Google Catherine Bigelow. It's like two, the year 2000. So I've got a computer, but Googling people isn't the thing it is today. And uh, I just don't know who this person is. I don't know if she's a casting assistant or the casting director. I just don't know. So we have a really great back and forth. And she goes, that's really fantastic, Sean. I, I, I think, I think this, you know, stick by the phone. And I was like, Oh, great. So I tell my agent that uh, I think the casting director really liked me. And he goes, no, that, that was Catherine. You were sitting with her. I was like, are you fucking <laughs> kidding me? I ha- now, by the way, I think this is a really good thing. I'm not sure I'd have booked the role if I knew that I was hanging out with Catherine because right. I knew who Catherine Bigelow was. So then it was about three, four weeks into shooting. And, you know, all the young guys were like shooting their shot, we'll call it. Like trying to, you know, there's about 15 of us who are playing the submariners on the ship. Your three leads are Harrison Ford, Liam Neeson, and Peter Sarsgaard. And then the rest of us are all creating the world. And I just, I always back up when people are being too pushy and all the other young guys I felt were really trying to get in her face and be noticed. And I just kind of did my thing on set and made sure my accent was good. And then one day I just walk up to her and it was a Russian submarine movie. And I was like, Catherine, and she knows who I am, but we haven't spoken really. And I'm like, it's a three and a half month shoot. So I know there's time and I just go, you know, um, I think it'd be really interesting if in that second to last scene, if uh, Liam Neeson's character goes up to Polenian, um, Harrison Ford's character and goes, this is your wake up call. I am F K G B agent. I didn't fuck it up on the day. And <laughs> yeah. she just started howling. And from that day forward, <laughs> we were tight. And uh, she used to call me to set to sit beside her and watch while we were shooting scenes I wasn't in. And it was glorious. And so that was me kind of shooting my shot. Like, hey, I fucking love this movie and your work. I've literally spent days thinking about this joke. 
And now I'm going to like tell you outside the hotel as we're all done dinner. And uh, it ended up sort of connecting us a little uh, because she appreciated that I was a fan, but also a colleague. Um, she was divine to work with. Like, and to be honest, that's another movie that I don't think quite came off. I think it's good and not great. Um, we we had a bunch of rewrites on the script throughout the whole process. And so I'm not sure we ever quite knew what script we were shooting in terms of the arc of the story. But hey, she Sean, was phenomenal to work with. What was their biggest learning um, you know, along those lines as you when you're directing a movie and you're producing it and co-producing it, um, what was your biggest learning in that process that like you never expected to learn, you know, when I was doing it? Yeah. Mm -hmm. God, that's such a good question. I think humility. I mean, honestly, I think humility around, like I said, my own acting work, um, because you know, there's so many great actors I just didn't cast cause they weren't the person. Um, humility about no matter what your best is, some days it's not brilliant. It's just solid. Um, and I kind of accepted that. Um, yeah, I think, and, and, you know, by that point I was very, I, I lovingly worked with others. You know, when I was younger, I wasn't, uh, and this goes back to that theater school vibe I got, like, I wasn't sure I was any good. And so I was always trying to prove I was good but I didn't really know how to do the thing I was doing at the level I wanted to do it. And there's that great Ira Glass quote from NPR where he goes, you know, a lot of people get really frustrated because they have great taste and it makes them go do a thing, but then they're not real good at it because they just haven't done it enough, but their taste is still good. And so now they go into a great despair because the distance between what they know good work is and they're capable of, but what they're actually doing. And so I was lucky enough that the first uh, director I had on, um, around the sixth episode of that first TV show I did, she pulled me aside and goes, listen, Sean, you're really capable. Like you got everything, but it's not always coming through. So you should get your dailies every day. And back then it was VHS tapes. So I had the producers drop off every second of footage I shot. And she said, only you know what you're going for and only you know how shy you're coming up. And you'll know what's missing. And she was sometimes his body language. So when I was younger, I was always trying to like, prove that I knew how to be a good lawyer. So I'm looking down and I'm working really hard at the law stuff, but that doesn't make for a good close up. Mm -hmm. And it was actually working on general hospital that taught me that to just stand and deliver. And in case you think I did, uh, when I got on the show, actually, I didn't have an ego about it, but before I did, that's all Spencer Tracy ever wanted to do. <laughs> Hit your mark, tell the truth. So I used the soap opera as an opportunity to have no props, just stand and look at the other actor and say the thing. And it's so much more intimate, so much more difficult. And if I want to tie a bow on your question, I actually was, that was never more confirmed than when I was directing. Cause I realized how much extra actors want to do. But if you stand and deliver casting, you was 90% of your work because you bring with you a life. Right. And then at that point, eh, maybe a bit of an accent, maybe a hunch a little more or less great. Now you're Richard the third, like it's not fucking rocket science. That's part of your costume, but your energy and your ability to be, and this maybe is really what was reinforced directing is, can you be with your scene partner? Can you, and if you don't have a scene partner, can you just walk across the room or are you trying to show you're walking across the room? Um, and I realized how much extra I was always doing as an actor. Hmm. So you had to do less. So it's not like, yeah, Always. it's totally good. 
It, now it reminds me of little little league a little bit, like because I like <laughs> yeah. to like go back there. But I remember one time this is kind of, this, but this is true. I remember um, at the time I was playing first base, and for whatever reason, I got into my head and I started thinking like, how am I catching this ball? Like this is mm. really strange. This whole thing's strange. And we were doing like. Uh, infield drills you know before the game and i was just getting peppered with <laughs> like baseballs because i just couldn't do that and then uh i think it was actually toby's dad who's my little league coach and he moved me to third base and then they were just hit it to me and then i was like fielding grounders so <laughs> so yeah it's something similar but i always go back to little league where toby's dad benched me and i'm still not over it <laughs> well <No. laughs> consciousness no, is the beginning of um like destruction, basically, right? Yeah. Like that's the fall from from Eden is is knowledge. And as soon as we're thinking about ourselves, we're out of the moment. And so then, what we hope, and I, I, I mean, I, I'm not even going to say I wish. I know that I'm at this part of my acting twenty years later, where it's me. Like when that camera's rolling in a week and a half, and I have to do the thing, it's me doing it. Now my temperament will be adjusted based on what the scene's asking for, but. I don't need to become anything. I need to allow. And that's the beautiful part of it. Uh, and there'll be some emotional stuff that I'll have to make sure my imagination's firing and my body's reacting. But until the day comes, I don't even know what I'll imagine that will put me in a certain place. Um, but in terms of even like the martial arts, like martial arts are never more dangerous than like when you're a green belt or a purple belt because you know enough, but not enough that you're thinking, wait, how would I punch? Boom. You know, you're, you're not there yet. And the, mm -hmm. for me, the fundamental idea of a black belt isn't some insane mastery for life that you can, you know, stand on the edge of a sword. It's that you've got your instinct back. So you've mm -hmm. learned the best way to hit, but you can actually do it instinctively again. Because white yeah. belts are fucking dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> but that was not a lot of green or purple belts are. That makes me think of like playing music. Like it's like I'm playing in bands and stuff. Like that is that like when I'm on stage, if I start thinking about what I'm supposed to be playing, I inevitably screw it up. But if I just go back into like getting into the moment, into the muscle memory, and all that, it's like it just comes naturally. But it's like if I if I stop to think about like what I'm supposed to be singing or what I'm supposed to be playing, I just completely like it's everything gets screwed up. <laughs> Maybe that's what Bodhi was trying to say, right? You just had to get out on the water, and you just had the you had to surf, right? Mm -hmm. I forgot what you said. <laughs> that's basically it was you know like being spiritual about what you're doing hmm. and completely commit to that you know you're you're surfing the wave you know you're robbing the bank well, or something like that 100% and when him and Tyler are sitting on the surfboards you know everyone's gone and they've stayed out of the water he really does have that peaceful look mm -hmm. um and Keanu's face is so perfect and pretty like not a line on it and well, and just that shape, and you, he just looks so calm. Now, and in, you realize no one else could have been Neo. Yeah. Now, in the uh, at the the last bank robbery when he uh, breaks his rule, is that one? Is he thinking? You know, did he break that spiritual thing at that? Like, what happened there? You know how they they go into the vault and they're yeah. never supposed to do the vault. Oh yeah. So what happened there that made him break the? You're yeah. pulling too much time, Bodie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Why did he break? Oh, why did he break the rule? You know, like what happened to him? He's an adrenaline junkie, maybe, and just decided to push it a little further. I can only tell you what I think from my own experience, <laughs> which is everything ends up hitting its fucking limit. Yeah, like yeah. even the best rules end up being 
not enough to fulfill your need for interaction and spirit and vibrancy. And so even the idea of Robin Banks will just hit its own limit. And also on a purely practical level, he kind of knows the gigs up, right? They're not coming back to North America ever again. And Interpol's going to get the info. So they kind of need to like stock up more than usual. So I think there's a practical aspect to it. But I also think there's a just like, this is who I am. Let's just, if we're doing it, let's do it. Mm-hmm. That's a really good point. Yeah, he knows that once Johnny Utah's in, in that van, and it's pretty much what, what are you going to do? Like you're either going to shoot Johnny Utah, then you still have to run, you know, but for killing a federal agent. Or you drop them off somewhere, but you still need the money to get out of the yep. U.S., you know. Yep. All right. So then, I, I found an um, interesting quote from uh, Patrick Swayze. It has to do with um, Catherine Bigelow being the director of this movie, which I thought was pretty interesting. It's on one of the, um, the behind-the-scenes movies. But he said, women oftentimes do macho guy movies a lot better than guys do because they have the ability to stand back. And when they don't pass judgment, and bring a deeper level of truth, wonderful things can happen. Which which is, uh, so I, I wanted to read that and get your take on that, Sean. Because especially, because he was talking in particular about Catherine Bigelow, what she brought to Point Break. Uh, I, I, what a beautiful quote. I mean, I do think the idea of perspective really makes a lot of sense. Because when I think about the guy directors I've worked with, especially the slightly older ones, they're always reliving an aspect of themselves through you. And that's not a bad thing, by the way. That's part of their life experience. And they're funneling what you should try and do. But if there's an impartiality, that, and again, I don't know what that experience was, but let's assume he's being accurate. Catherine gets to watch and take Patrick as Patrick and Keanu as Keanu, et cetera. So I think it's a great point, you know, and she's obviously proven herself as someone who can create that drama and tension as well as anybody who's ever directed, you know, um, whether you think her whole catalog warrants that type of praise, you know, her, her work in Hurt Locker and Zero Dark, like, and Point Break proves it. I'm curious, like, does it work the other way? Uh, you know, the, the idea of like directing an other, like that perspective you get, um, you know, would it make sense for a black person to direct a white film or a queer to direct a straight film or, you know, like, um, would you, would that quote, person, right? What's that? Makes sense. Like there's someone like who Ang Lee, who grew up, who's Asian, he's Taiwanese and he did Brokeback Mountain, which is something totally different than from his background. But so the only two things I've directed are a feature film and uh, a play that I co-produced and, and directed in Toronto. And the play was about two women who realized that they, uh, love each other, but have only been straight prior to then. It's called Stop Kiss. And um, we won all the awards, got the extended run and all that kind of thing. And then, in fact, the film I directed, Barn Wedding, had a very similar plot line, um, totally by coincidence. Um, all my co-producers were women. The stories were utterly female-led and female-driven. And they came off well. Like, you know, we got ensemble acting awards for the film. Um I don't know how true that is or isn't, but I do know that it was very easy for me to look at, let's say, two women having an experience together and just take it as, yeah, but here's what you got to do to be better at the scene as an actor and amplify the humanity of what's needed. Um, 
So for what it's worth, I mean, in those situations, it wasn't a story about bisexuality or a story about lesbianism. It was a story about love. And I think that's always the goal. Now, I do think that since the wheels turned a little more since then, that I'd rather see those directed by women or people who are bisexual so that you get actually their experience, which is far too limitedly described in the world. Um, but I do know that it, it worked for me um, to just stand back and be like, and also I'm just fascinated by the other, right? Like I live with myself and my like white friends who look like me since childhood and we're still best friends. Awesome. But that's fucking, I'm praying to get outside of myself <laughs> yeah. with work and with life. So anyways, I, I think that's a really valid point, Toby. And I think that I, I actually wish there was more room for that in the current dialogue, but I think we'll get there because more importantly is having the representation that's been lacking. Um, right. I, I mean, I, I like you were saying with like actors, I think everybody brings something personal to the films and there's a lot of other experiences that we're just not seeing on film. And they're like, I'm always searching for that other perspective and yeah. like bringing it back to point break. Like this was supposed to be directed by Ridley Scott originally, yeah. which would have been a completely different film. It probably would have been great, but it would have yeah. com been a completely different film than it, what we got. Yeah. And I think that like Catherine Bigelow did something very unique with, with her take on it. And I think that that comes through very clearly that like a different perspective brings a completely different film. A hundred percent. I mean, that's now, all we have is perspective. Right. Now, am I, I was thinking about this before we got on. It seems like Catherine Bigelow really kind of inhabits a very unique place within a lot of um, like movie directors. Cause I was trying to, is, or is there anybody else that is really kind of directing these type of movies who's female? I mean, maybe there's the Mimi later who did uh, the peacemaker. Right. So, but other than that, like, I thought it was just, I don't know, like, I don't know where I'm going with this, but I was just thinking about that because there's Catherine Brigelow and then I guess who else? Can you think of anything? I think it's like, a, you know, the, the, the commentary that I learned while researching this movie is like, there's only been one woman director who's won the Oscar. Right. You know, yeah, I guess that's true. That's really, that's it, is that, you know, we can Google a few more and it's a shame that we just don't have yeah. them the way that we have the Scorsese's and the Ridley Scott's and all that. Um, and that's, that's again, why I go back and say like, you know, there's so many people I know who are my age who aren't Brad Pitt famous and who are starting now to use the, Oh yeah. Nobody wants the white guy's story anymore. And it's like, yeah, that's fine. Like that's, that's okay. Yeah. Just go watch the last hundred years of everything. <laughs> yeah, pretty good run. <laughs> you'll be you'll yeah. be fine. Yeah. And if it if it means you get to play the buddy and not mm -hmm. the lead, then that's life. Like that that is what it is. Um, because it's really depressing that we don't have ten other women we can name. And uh, but it's really amazing also that that Catherine did become that first woman to win that Oscar and and does occupy that space. Mm -hmm. All right, I had a couple other topics. This one's for Sean. No, I know you may not be a cop, but you played one on Code Eight. Mm -hmm. And is it reckless to hit a neo-Nazi house with only four agents, which <laughs> one is uh, which you told to hide <laughs> in the bushes? <laughs> you know, so I saw that you sent questions, and I didn't want to know them. So, yeah. but I did see this one, and it was funny because I thought 
my way through the scene entirely. I think that was a legit operation. I think that was the beauty of the tension was the wild card of the lawnmower mm. because he's like, get him out of there, get him out of there. Oh yeah. And they're yeah. like, what? They can't hear him. So I think that done, uh, by the book would have been a perfectly, you know, SOP standard operating procedure. But I think that's the beauty of filmmaking. And Ben Kingsley talks about it, right? Why did God push the car up the hill? Why did the hand of God, why did God start the lawnmower at that moment? Um, because all of a sudden you get death and destruction out of it uh, when it could have just been a straight up arrest or they call for more backup with SWAT. So I think it was a solid, solid, solid plan but God threw the lawnmower in their, in their way. <laughs> Bob, we, we learned in our martial arts may that uh, you can have the whole, you know, army with you and try to take a building and you're not going to have very good luck. No, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yep. That's yeah. from the raid and the raid too. Ah, yes. Well. <laughs> <laughs> That's the supernatural other. Oh yeah. Exactly. Oh, yeah. Um, and then I guess, what do you guys think in your heart of hearts? Did Bodhi actually die? Because I think they were actually talking about doing a remake of Point Break with Patrick Swayze. It just never. Well, they were talking about anywhere. doing a sequel. They sequel did do after, a remake. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yes, yeah. the other way around. Yeah. The remake I did watch it, but I totally forgot what it was like. It was that forgettable. <laughs> I, I when the re- oh, just real quick when that remake came out and I saw the trailer, I I had thought it was a Mountain Dew ad the first time I saw the trailer, <laughs> which because it was just like a bunch of clips of extreme sports like yeah. stuff, and I was like, what? Like is? And then I like realized it was a a point break remake that I never, I actually never saw it, but yeah. I really like the actor uh, who's Edgar Ramirez, who, who was Bodhi in the 2015 point break. Mm-hmm. He did this really good mini series called Carlos after Carlos, the Jackal that. Oh just, yeah. Just throw it out there. Yeah. Cool. Hmm. Uh, but anyways, I, I, I think he died. I do. Yeah. Uh, I, I go there because I think that's the right ending. Mm-hmm. And uh, if they sequeled it up, I'd have been first in line. But I think that's can, I think we, that's what happened. Can we talk about the ending for a minute? Because that was the one thing I didn't like about the movie. Like I wanted it to end when he drives away in the car, when mm. when Bodhi drives away and they're in the desert. Like I th- I was hoping that was the ending. I moused over. I was like thirteen more minutes. What's happening here? <laughs> like um, I didn't need the closure. I thought it was a better. I don't know. Like I mean, you know, who am I? You know, but. Uh, I really liked it. Like at that point, I was like totally comfortable because the friendship to me was like, like this weird codependent friendship. Like I really liked that and believed in that. And then the the ending kind of made it, I don't know. It was like too tied up with a bow for me. I I think that's a really great point. And it's, I think that would be an equally good ending, but I do think what's really important that I just want to touch on that you, you mentioned is I think Bodhi met his equal for the first time, right? And Mm -hmm. that's what's so beautiful about the relationship is he had all these followers, but he never had an equal. And I think he saw that in Utah. And uh, I do think that's the only reason why the ending was necessary, um, because he still doesn't quite have an equal if he drives away in the desert. Mm -hmm. Uh, But he does have an equal if Utah finds him and can lock him up, but chooses to let him go. So I... I would have just been as happy with the movie you described and I'm really just justifying why they added the scene. But I do think that idea of an equal is what makes that relationship work in a world of, you know, weird FBI guys and only followers of surfers. But those two could connect in a different world. They'd be like having beers together and watching the game on weekends. Uh Yeah, because that's what they really wanted. They really just wanted to be best friends forever. But there's just the 
little thing about the bank robberies in the way. And Johnny Utah couldn't let that slide. Well, so let's go deep on this, aging hipsters. As aging <laughs> yeah. hipsters, um, at what point do you hang up the gloves of a certain type of behavior and go, you know what? I'm not that guy anymore. I'm not that 22-year-old circa whatever year you guys were 22. Like when I think back to second year university, it was 94. I mean, the playlist at the bar. (laughs) Remember, no digital other than CDs, but you've just got, you're hearing for the first time, Killing in the Name of, Live Forever Oasis. Creep is just dropping as a new song. Mm -hmm. Love Spread Stone Roses, like a nuts, just tune after tune after tune. Well, of course, that's a glory period of my life, but I'm not that guy anymore. Mm -hmm. So at what point do you go, hey, I am actually going to stop robbing the bank? It's a genuine question for you guys. When do you chill out a little? I think you have to have the confidence to chill out. For instance, like I think I got to the point where I'm just okay. Oh, this is maybe this makes sense or not, but just being completely sober. You know, I spent years like smoking pot. And I kind of that kind of dropped off, and then before, like I'd always like whenever, whenever somebody is like, like, oh, you want a beer or something? I would always kind of take it, but not really be into it. Like, and but now I'm just like, hey, yeah, I don't drink. Yeah, yeah, I don't do that anymore. And not that I have anything against it, but it's just, but I think it's just that confidence to, to, to do something. I think a lot of times when I think about like the past, you know, I just turned 40. Well, I'm 41 now, but besides the point, but I got into podcasting because basically like I realized a lot of my prior pursuits, like even like Toby and I played in the band, you know, for, for a while, but I gave it up because I think I was really afraid at some point, like I, whether I felt like a fraud Mm. or all this kind of stuff, I just didn't have the confidence just to do, whatever and then finally i got to the point where i'm just like i'm just going to podcast i'm just going to do this i'm going to figure out how to do it i'm going to put it out i'm going to talk about this stuff and just and that's what happened i just i just did it and you just have to get to the point where you just make that first step and commit to something right like Bodhi committed to this is what his life was going to be about and that's what gave him the power that he had But I wonder, you know, because that's really where the question comes from, is I wonder, could he have let that go if he had let these young guy ideals mellow into, um, fucking, I always love that scene in Wedding Crashers where Vince Vaughn is like, hey, man, we're just a couple young guys out, you know, having a good time. And Owen's like, we're not that young anymore, man. (laughs) And I remember around mid thirties when I started to be like, oh yeah, that's me. Like. You don't mm-hmm. want to be the guy at the bar too long who's 38 and the bar is for 22-year-olds. Yeah. And I wonder if Swayze like died at the perfect age as a metaphor because you can't keep doing that. And I don't even mean bank robbery. I mean chasing the endless summer. Mm-hmm. Too, it's not cute when you're hitting the other side of 40. Yeah. Now, if, you, if, if you're just a hippie, sure. But if you're <laughs> yeah. a dude who's kind of got a little like – you know, I don't know. Then you kind of go, oh, yeah, maybe maybe there's some roots to put down, or even if not roots, some chilling out to do. I don't know. Yeah, yeah like what is Bodhi going to do? Is he going to open up his own surf shop somewhere, like and uh, open up like a food truck? That's kind of how I'm like, hearing I don't the question. Know. At what point are you comfortable? And this is the aging hipster question that Sean's asking. Yeah. I think for me, this is how I interpret it: is like 
at what point are you comfortable in your own skin? Comfortable yeah. enough to just be like, you know what? I can, I can just relax. Like, yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. I'm probably too late. Cause I, I definitely have some cringeable moments. Yeah. I have some moments of glory, but then there's some other me, like I, I, I can think of a specific point in time. So um, this is going to sound really lame to everybody in the world, including myself. Um, I, I built a, uh, I should say I carefully curated a reputation. Well, what I thought was a reputation and it probably was a legit reputation as like the WordPress guy in Minneapolis. Um, and I was doing it for a long time and I was really afraid to let that go. Mm. Um, and probably like, uh, three or four years ago. So right now I'm 41 and, um, I just was, I reached a point where I go like, nobody gives a shit. (laughs) Like, why do I give a shit? (laughs) And that was the moment where I let it go when I realized that and I can like point to it. Yeah. Yeah. I was just talking to this guy that I work with. And he's like my peer, basically. We're both like kind of like, you know, in leadership on our on our team. And he like he hasn't really taken any time off in like five years or something. And he was actually kind of opening up saying like, oh, I'm just like I'm just he, he's driven so much by like thinking like if he takes time off, then he's not helpful at all. And so and like I had some of those same things when I was working and uh, even like recently, you know, like, uh, you know, it's, I'm definitely a little bit older than him, you know? So I was just like, you just gotta go do it. It's okay. It's okay to take yeah. a week off. You know, yeah. you gotta like, we're not going to fire you. We're not going to be like, Oh, you're gone. Like, you know, <laughs> and that's sometimes you have to kind of get that because, you know, I had, you know, basically like two weeks off because uh, my wife had COVID and I came back and everything was pretty much fine. You it's know, like, trust that people yeah. um, care about you. I think not you, Bob, but like for me, like it's hard for me to like tr- lean into that. I think sometimes, and that's like this aging hipster dilemma for me, how I interpret right. it. Like, um, they like they don't care what I'm doing or how I'm doing it. They just care that I'm healthy, you know. Um, I always say to my actor friends, especially the younger ones, but I'm really saying it to myself. If people thought about you as much as you think they do, <laughs> you'd be as famous as you think you should be. <laughs> and yeah. that in therein does lie the dilemma because yeah. it's like I'm still striving for another let. Like I have a really good life and a really good career and. I've got some toys with it and I've got, you know, time off plus a lot of work to do. Like it's a really nice balance. And I was even talking to my girlfriend about it a bit earlier. I was like, I wonder when I'm going to just kind of be like, okay with this and not going, yeah, but when's the next one coming? Mm-hmm. And I could tell you this being on billboards and magazine covers is nice, but it doesn't do what anybody thinks it's going to do. Cause that's again, I mean, I, I can't really talk about any of my story without getting into the booze and drugs. That's why I needed those things was because I was like, wait, I've made it. I'm downtown Toronto and I can point to myself on a billboard and my name's bigger than me and it doesn't feel the way I thought it should feel. And in many ways, though, I'm still learning that lesson, which is you can be on the show. It can be the this. You can be the that in it. Oh, but there's that guy's the lead or, oh, that guy's got the better part. And that doesn't always happen. It happens less over time, but it definitely is something that I wonder always what the difference between striving and just giving up is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I had a friend who turned 40 three months before me and he was, he's like a, almost a scratch golfer. 
And I, I've known him since I was four. And I was like, Greg, how is it up there? How's the air up there? And with no joke, he was as calm as I've ever seen him. And he goes, it's fucking great. I was like, what? You, you mean that? He goes, I've never enjoyed golfing so much. I was like, what, did you hit some great games? He goes, they were fine. But the day I turned 40, I realized I'd never be a pro golfer. <laughs> the guy was 39, still yeah. thinking he might yeah. make it. Right. Yeah. The peace that washed over him. He used to break clubs, fucking divot the greens. And like when he'd miss a putt, he's just m- misses it or makes it. And he's all good with it. And I was like, damn, <laughs> good for you. Cause we all knew around age 28, he wasn't going to make it. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> but isn't it like some, like just the expectation, like I think there's the Ira Glass quote that you can't use said later, like the expectation that, that I'm going to make it to this just gets in the way so much. And then, you don't yep. even and so you don't even produce a great product to get you to that next level because you're just in your way well, Bob, so much. Along those lines, why do you care about how many people listen to the show? I don't know. I don't know, but it kind of does affect me sometimes. Sometimes it doesn't. I don't even really look at stuff, but then sometimes it it does. Yeah. So I don't, I don't, I don't know. It's like why why do anybody that does like performance art like it ultimately impacts you a little bit you're playing a gig and nobody shows up there's only so many times you can go and i'm not saying like no one's showing up or no one's downloading this right but it's like similar like you like you should be like it's all about the music but then sometimes it's still it's really hard to kind of keep that separate right yeah well yeah it's it's hard for sure but the the strange thing like logically looking at it is like that's the thing we can't control no, yeah, totally. Right. No, there's a lot of stuff that we can't control, like the performance that, like you know, like that we were doing. I was very happy with, and then it just when I went into that a stupid computer website <laughs> with a stupid number, looking at that, and I'd be like, "What the heck is this?" And then, yeah, it made me it made me bummed out for two days. Well, you know, Nirvana when they recorded uh, was it? I can't remember if it was in utero or, or uh, never mind. But the uh, Penny Royalty, it was in utero. They said they spent way longer on Penny Royalty, that song, than any yeah. other song they'd ever recorded. And it was not the hit by any means. You uh, know? Exactly. And I didn't even like it at the time. You know, yeah. and I was surprised to hear that. You know? Well, if we had the formula for going viral, we could just start yeah. the company and be billionaires because <laughs> that's the, yeah. the lightning in a bottle. I remember when that woman came out with the YouTube cover of Umbrella, I think it was. And it was like a mellow one and it blew up and she was on Ellen maybe. The next day, YouTube was just saturated with everyone doing their cloyingly slow, delicate cover of what had otherwise been a hip hop or hardcore song. And I bet many of them were shocked at the 209 views they got because they thought they were going to be on Ellen. Yeah. And But the other thing, too, is, you know, I think it's val- like my only reward for doing martial arts is that I get to do martial arts. Like tomorrow in my condo, I'm going to find some space and do some martial arts. I do it every day. It's its own joy. And aside from a bit of teaching in Toronto, I don't derive an income. But if my acting career, no one watches it, I don't have an income. And so I do think there are times where worrying or wanting something from the external is a real valid way to go, am I moving toward my goals? And sometimes those goals include financial. Like I don't check my IMDB star meter all the time, but every once in a while I just check in and go, okay, I had a couple projects come out. Is it are they being received? Um, and man, the number of times I've had, you know, big projects just not really do anything. And then other projects that weren't really whatever, 
get written up and now you bump up 3000 spaces. So it's voodoo, but it can be, what's the word? I guess maybe important isn't the word, but important if you're deriving an income from it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's Cause I really, like things. Yeah. I didn't. Yeah. I didn't even know there was a star meter. <laughs> oh yeah. That. If you go to IMDb, it's on IMDb pro, but uh, oh, I don't have that. And it's pretty launch dependent, right? Like yeah. your movie stars are X ranking, mm-hmm. but you could go in on any given week and someone you've never heard of will be number eight and Harrison Ford's number 2000. <laughs> and there's no way that that person's yeah. a bigger movie star, but that week they're trending. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it's, uh, it's a tool that gets used within the industry for sure. I always think and, like that. It, it's, I'm kind of like fascinated by the idea of perspectives and like, um, there's always, you know, Harrison Ford's probably sitting there going, I wish I was as good an actor as such and such, you know? Like, I don't know if he is, but maybe some other. <laughs> right. Right. I wouldn't be surprised that, well, he, maybe not Harrison. He might be a bad example, but someone who cares about <laughs> acting. Uh, yeah. You know. Yeah. Well, I mean, he famously always says like, I'm not a great actor, but I'm a great movie star. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, you know, I, I, he's. You see, people find their niche, but I'm sure that there's people out there who wish they were other people. I mean, um, Sean Penn always wanted to be Mickey Rourke, and uh, I know that even like John Mayer always talks about how like he'll be defined by how not as good as Stevie Ray Vaughan is. He doesn't, you know, he's so good. I mean, but. But the interesting thing about In, that is nobody who listens to Stevie Ray Vaughan gives a shit about John Mayer and vice versa. Like you might think so, but have you ever have you ever typed in like John Mayer plays Hendrix? I haven't. No. Oh, okay. So this goes back to the Keanu thing where uh John Mayer's easily one of the best blues guitarists of all time. Like Clapton just goes, John Mayer's a master. He's an utter master. Uh, John Mayer's been playing with Grateful Dead for the last couple of years. And every Grateful Dead fan ends up going, what the fuck? This is the body is a wonderland guy. Like this is the best the band sounded since I saw them in 71 or whatever. Now the flip side, and this goes back to the Bill and Ted's thing is when, when people are like John Mayer, the body is a wonderland guy. I'm like, body is a wonderland is a wonderful song. Like you try writing and playing that song. So I like his pop and his blues, but do yourself a favor. I don't want to make this all about John Mayer, but Google uh, John Mayer blues solo and then just sit back and go, oh shit, I had no idea. So yeah, SRV guys are definitely overlapping with John but Mayer. I like the, I, I, so I'm sure there's that cadre out there, but I know a guy who Stevie Ray Vaughan transformed his life and I guarantee you he doesn't give a shit about John Mayer. And like it, the, the interesting thing to me isn't any of that. It's that, John Mayer thinks it matters. And that's the yes. aging hipster. He's not, he hasn't aged yet. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. Oh. So this, oh, but speaking of aging hipster, right? So my first film, I was 25 shooting with Catherine Bigelow. That's the age of Johnny Utah. Mm-hmm. Then, you know, I rewatched the film a few years later and I'm like, ah, I'm a little more Bodie now. <laughs> and I realized the other day that if that movie was made today, I'd play Pappas. <laughs> and what a weird fucking realization <laughs> when you're Pappas 18, you got hair down the middle of your back, you're fucking outdoors guy. And all of a sudden you're Pappas. Which one is Pappas? 
Pappas is Gary Busey. Busey. Yeah, Gary Busey. Mm-hmm. Oh, Busey. Okay. <laughs> You're the guy going two bricks. Meatballs, yeah. Give me to Utah. <laughs> I think I've always been the Pappas. I've always been the two meatball guys. Like, <laughs> so uh, something just dawned on me. Two bricks. And then oh. he's like, you've been doing this 22 years. Yeah, 22. Oh, and then the... He's all about the twos in that movie. Yeah, wow. Just realize that. See, this is why you got to watch a movie 38 times. (laughs) (laughs) Totally unlinked links. All right. One last question before we get into our trivia. Um, So is is Johnny Utah the best character name ever? Is it on the Mount Rushmore? Yes. Like, I I was really taken by Mad Mardigan from Willow. And then um, there's always going to be Caster Troy from Face Off. Who is the quarterback from the program? Kane? uh, Oh, Tommy. Joe Kane. Joe, Joe Kane. Kane. That's a pretty good name for a quarterback. That's not Johnny Utah. There's actually uh, the Utah last name is is out there. So, so. do you guys know the actor Neil McDonough? Mm-hmm. Mm. I probably know his face. You'd know his face for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyways, he's a good friend of mine. And I called him up one day. We were trying to figure out a project we could work on together. And I was like, Neil, I got an idea. And we just started riffing out the most typical, like, priest who become i'm not even gonna say it because we might make it and i was like i got the name we're, and I, I literally built the movie around the name john falcon and we were so <laughs> yeah. excited we're like it sells itself yep. and, and and i or pardon me i'm so excited i leave him this message i leave him this message and he texts me back like about 20 minutes later he goes uh, i was in a movie called john falcon and i was like what <laughs> and i looked it up okay let me look this up john falcon is a movie um okay I'm not going to find it right away. I don't want to waste everyone's time, but I'll do it while we're talking. John Falcon. There's a movie called John Falcon and he was in it. And I was like, Oh, well I figured that uh, IMDB. There it is. I figured that makes sense because it's such a good movie name. So I'm going to throw John Falcon into the mix (laughs) for, uh, for a good movie name. Agreed. That is good. But Johnny Utah is pretty good. Johnny Utah is classic. Is that the best uh, state or province last name? Like is what's what's better? Perfect. Like if, I mean, yeah. Well, well, you know, <clears throat> I'm gonna just trust that the writers like uh, went through every state: Johnny Illinois, Johnny. <laughs> <Wisconsin>. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was it was supposed to be a riff on Joe Montana. Oh. Yeah, and, and uh, Johnny Unitas. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, it's, it's so gonna be good jo- Johnny Yukon territory. Um, <laughs> anyways, Toby, why don't you do a quick segue, and then we'll get into our trivia. Great. from patrick swayze's ghost right Mm -hmm. so we are Uh, like literally like patrick swayze and our dear listeners are is demi moore on the (laughs) pottery wheel so let us get into the trivia sean i like to do trivia Okay. And so we got six questions. It has to do with Point Break, also about other stuff that happened in 1991. Ooh, I like All right. this. Question Only one. Six questions, eh? Yep. Uh, question, question one. Point Break went through t- had two other names. What were they? Okay, I think I know this. One of them was Riders on the Storm, uh, and one of them. Oh fuck! I can't remember it. Got a Toby? hint. Any, oh, yeah. Anybody else? Riders of the Storm is correct. Mm-hmm. It, but I think the doors just came out. So they're just like, maybe that's a little bit too on the nose. Mm-hmm. 
Oh, please, please don't. A fucking uh, Riders on a Storm. God, okay, I'm not going to get it. I'm going to be so mad when I hear it. I don't know. We we just said it. Yeah, Johnny Utah. It was originally just called Johnny oh. Utah. Oh. <laughs> <For years. laughs> and then it went to Riders on the Storm, and then about halfway through, it became Point Break. Yeah, All I'm right. glad they didn't call it Riders on the Storm. Yeah. 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 Point Break, yeah. the much better title. Yeah. Well, definitely. Yeah. Okay. Um, question two. This was a movie about adrenaline, so the actors did a lot of their own stunts. The stunt director held extensive fight classes uh, on the weekends before shooting, but one actor did not show up. Who was he? I'm going to say Patrick Swayze because he was already well versed in fighting. <laughs> uh, Sean House and yeah. um, for for fight training. I, I mean, I'm just going to go Gary Busey, but that's probably not a good answer since he isn't really in any fights. Tim, you know you're yeah. you're smiling like you know this. Yeah, Anthony Kiedis. <laughs> he re- he refused to show up, and that's why he gets punched out right away. Oh and my he was god! Really I love pissed this. about it. He was really really mad about it. <laughs> that would be a waste of time. I love that. Yeah, yeah, and then like, and then I guess he showed up afterwards. Yeah, yeah. After, after that, then they didn't come. That makes so much sense. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Question three: Which of these actors was not up for the role of Johnny Utah? Matthew Broderick, Johnny Depp, Willem Dafoe, Patrick Swayze, Christian Slater. I mean, I'm going Willem Dafoe. Toby, I'm thinking Johnny Depp. Tim, do you know which one? Yep. Christian Slater. Yep, he was not. Yeah, yeah. Fact, Johnny Depp was the one they were really pushing for. I, oh wow! It makes sense because To Live or Die in L.A. had come out around the time they were initially doing it, right? Mm-hmm. Oh man! And Patrick Swayze originally they wanted him to be Johnny Utah, but he read it and is like, "I'm not doing anybody but booty." Yeah. Oh. But yeah, yeah. Catherine Bigelow was pushing hard for Keanu, and nobody would believe understood why. They just kept like asking her why why and she was just like he's exactly who i want and wouldn't back down so did she did she have to show any tape or anything or did she, did she just get to convince people like i mean i'm sure he auditioned but my understanding is that uh cameron had her back and mm. he helped he helped support her in that even though he also didn't see it he also didn't didn't he's like i don't know why you want him but i'll i'll back you in front of the producers and that and because of that i think that that's why she got to go with him well, that's fantastic. Yeah. I love the idea that you back somebody, even if you don't get it. Yeah. Well, right, and Cameron had a, a history a of Canadian. that too, like uh, you know, making his movies. Right. <laughs> Question three: In 1991, Kentucky Fried Chicken changed their name to KFC. Why did they do that? A: The chicken they sold wasn't technically a chicken. B: The Commonwealth of Kentucky copyrighted Kentucky. C, they realize Kentucky kind of sucks. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. I hope it's not A, so I'm going to go with B. I actually Everybody think else? it's A. I think I remember that. I, w- I was going to go with B, but I, I, I assume that they had changed it because they were trying to get, like, get away from the fried name. But, yeah, I guess I, I don't know. Uh, it is B. Uh, the A was actually the rumor. Everyone's like, oh, they changed <laughs> right. it because of because it's not chicken, but the Commonwealth of Kentucky copyrighted the word Kentucky. So they, they were liable to start paying the state of Kentucky 
like money on the name. Wow. So they changed it to KFC. Wow. Yeah. Oh, leave it to Kentucky. I know. Yeah. Seriously. And aren't they still a welfare state or no? <laughs> yeah. They got to well, fucking, uh, what's the word? Uh, patent a few more things. Yeah. yeah. Get the IP rocking down there. Yeah. So it could, yes, either B or C would be acceptable. Um, question four: <laughs> uh, What was the minimum wage in the U.S. in 1991? <sighs> U.S. dollars. We're not talking about loonies here, Sean. U.S. dollars. Okay, I'm gonna go. Uh, I'm gonna go three and a quarter. Toby, I was actually gonna say that, so I'll go three ten. <laughs> Tim. I was, I was, that was actually the, my guess too. They'll, they'll go three fifty. I don't know. <laughs> it was actually four twenty five. Wow! Yeah. It must have because when I was in college, I think it was still four twenty five. Yeah, I was going to say yeah. my that, that first job been. was ninety three, ninety four, and it was four twenty five. So yeah, yeah. I remember yeah. working at a donut shop for four twenty five, <laughs> and I got there. a job at McDonald's for five fifty, and I was like, "Woo!" I was like, <laughs> yeah. just like rolling in it. When I worked in yeah. politics, they paid us eight bucks an hour, and we we're like. Like, whoa, that's way more than minimum wage. <laughs> well, that's interesting because my first job in Canada would have been 90 and I would have gotten 410 an hour minimum wage. So interesting that there was parity, but I guess mm-hmm. that makes sense because your cost of living is generally adjusted, right? Yeah, it just, yeah, it just seems so low because, you know, it was just crazy. Well, I, I think mean, Clinton raised it. I think I think that was yeah. like one of his big achievements. Is, well, what's but honestly, even right now? It's like seven dollars, which isn't much better. Honestly, like seven eighty-five or something like that. Right. All right. Question five. What was the number one song in Canada in nineteen ninety-one? I'll I'll give you I'll give you a hint. It was also the number one song in the world. Wow. Okay. So it's uh gonna be the Brian Adams song from uh, Robin Hood. There that is go. right. Wow. You got a ding, ding, ding. Oh. There. Yep. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> I do. Uh, yeah. I would die for you. I would die that's, for you. That one? Yeah. That's one. It's got a great music video of him you. singing at a waterfall. There we <laughs> yeah. go. Everything I do, I do it for you. Nice. Those hints really helped, by the way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. It, it only did, the only two com- uh, countries that did not reach number one. Is Italy and Spain. Hmm. Hmm. Um, all right. Last question. I was really hit by how many Canadians there were in the arts. So I'm going to name some celebrities and everyone tell me if they're from the US or Canada. Ooh. All right. Seth Rogen. Canada, right? Canada. Yep. Canada. Mike Myers. This is an easy one. Canada. Canada. Yeah. Yep. Tommy Chong. Nope. US. <laughs> Nope. Canada. Yes. He's wow. from like Alberta or something. Mm. Keanu Reeves. That's uh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. He is the ex uh, goaltender who turned into an actor. He was in <laughs> Youngblood's originally. Youngblood. Yeah. Yep. The French Canadian goaltender. <laughs> <laughs> that I will happily say out loud is not a good accent. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't quite it. Donald Sutherland. Absolutely. No, he's Canadian, right? Yeah, he is Canadian. His uh, he had a relative that was like a, what, a governor of one of the provinces, I believe. Tommy oh. Douglas. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Leslie Nielsen. Of course. Yeah, he's Canadian. Yeah. 
The Property Brothers. I don't know who that is. Yes, they are. Yes, everyone <laughs> is freaking Canadian. Uh, yeah, yeah, everybody's Canadian. Corey Haim. I guess absolutely. Yeah, Nathan Fillion. He's Canadian. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Nickelback, Toby. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Patrick Swayze. No, he. he you can't have everything. He is from Texas. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yep. Which is kind of funny. I mean, it's kind of like kind of a tongue-in-cheek thing. Do you think, Sean, one of the reasons why Canadians are so successful is because there's so much production being done in Canada? I think it's twofold. I think that's part of it. Um, So what happens is we have a lot of the U.S. stuff come up and shoot, but we also have our own industry. And there's so many shows you'll never have heard of um, that are successful. And... So what that ha- what means is by the time you get to know who a Canadian actor is, they might have already shot a bunch of stuff. So, for example, when I moved to Los Angeles, I'd already been a lead on two television series and shot a major blockbuster film. By the time I'm meeting people in L.A. and going to my first acting class in L.A. So there was an immediate like, holy shit, who's this guy? Like, get him into stuff. Um, and Ben Affleck talks about that. He goes, milk every fucking drop out of whatever place you're from before you come to LA so that you can move as laterally as possible. So I got to go down and be a quote unquote Canadian star. That's how my manager and team pitched me. And again, that was working until um, I started doing too many drugs in my late (laughs) twenties, which really sucked because I was on a real nice trajectory as a new guy in town who was going to be on the rise. Um, It it cost me a fair bit to be that kind of a a partier. Um, But in any case, uh, I think that because we have our own industry, um, we can, by the time we emerge, we've already been at it and had some real time on set. So we're not going to fail as quickly and therefore we can rise more quickly. The flip side too is our industry isn't that big. So a lot of Canadian actors end up doing voiceovers. They end up doing commercials. They end up doing uh, a lot of theater. And so thereby, again, just a lot more time in like when you find an actor, like my first TV series, yeah, I'd never acted on TV before, but it was probably my, I don't know, 200, 300, maybe 400th professional day acting because of theater. So there was a translation to the medium, but acting wasn't a new thing for me. Uh, so side note, you know, Vince Vaughn talks about that with swingers, how he, people were like, oh, he's an overnight success. And he's like, overnight success here's my first headshot when I was 17 and swingers came out when he was 27. He goes, it was a 10 year journey to an overnight success. So I think a lot of us Canadians go through that by the time, you know who we are, we've got a few days under our belt. That's Mm -hmm. true. I just wanted to put it out there that Vince Vaughn is not Canadian. He's from Chicago. Ah. (laughs) You can't take him either. And neither is Ben Affleck either. I'm taking him. Um, By the way, quick thing about that, and I don't want to like tell his story because you can go listen to him on Marin, but Jim Carrey went down to LA, crashed and burned a bunch of times, and went back to Canada for two years. But he could. Like there was this place he could go and you know, it's almost like Coltrane going into the shed and just go, I'm gonna go woodshed up in Canada for a while. And what I always like, again, like to tell my young acting students is be like, he didn't do it for like three weeks. He literally went and refound a voice or found a new voice. Like, and then he went back and a lot of people will do like a shitty job or like do five bad auditions in a row. And they'll be like, fuck, I'm no good at this. And they'll be like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go take a six week acting intensive. And it's like, 
No, fuck off for like two years. Go travel, go travel to Europe, get some life experience, figure out why you want to, like, what do you want to say or what excites you about this thing? And then do that. Um, and I really like that about Jim Carrey. And it's obvious that that's a guy who took big swings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Does anybody have anything else, Toby? Uh, yeah, I just wanted to bring up a guy we haven't talked about yet, John C. McGinley. Um, Ooh, that's right. Uh, who, uh, you know, every now and then I'll watch a movie and be like, where do I know that guy from? And he's from Office Space. And uh, yeah. I just want to play the, uh, the, the famous clip that he's in. <laughs> um, right. So there's three more people we can easily lose. And then there's Tom Sinkowski. <laughs> He's useless. Gone. Sounds good to me. <laughs> um, I love that guy just from uh, the Office Space movie, but I know he was in Platoon and has a rich career <laughs> beyond <laughs> those three movies, you know, Point Break and the other two. But uh, he's also when, American, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> but he's so great because, yeah. look, I, I've gotten to do a lot of nice roles playing what you'd sort of call the charming villain. You know, like the guy who is like the nice doctor who ends up like raping someone or whatever. And it's, you know, it's, it's tough stuff to play, but you have to be able to do both the dark and the sunshine. And I think when an actor finds even for a period, what their niche is, they have a chance at success. And the one thing I love about John McGinley, like that guy's willing in that movie to be the most fucking want to punch you guy you've ever met (laughs) and in office space too. And that's, what's so great is he, there, it actually is a real um, vulnerability to be able to fully play the asshole like that. Um, and it doesn't get enough notice because we think vulnerability is like crying or softness, but it's also very vulnerable to be seen as that much of a jerk. And I think that's uh, part of the reason the movie works so well is we get why Utah wants to follow Bodie and not McGinley. Cause that would be his other father figure yeah. in the movie, right? Is his boss at the FBI. And so these performances really matter. And McGinley fucking nails it. Yeah. Or I guess Pappas, but then they'd just be eating meatballs and missing bank <laughs> robberies. You know, like um, anything else that we have before we call it a, an episode? I no. just want to say thanks, guys. This has been a real pleasure. And uh, I appreciate you, Bob, uh, letting me sort of steer it this way. Because, you know, we could have talked about the boys or other aspects of my career. But I think this is a lot more fun and a lot more interesting. To, no, to the listener yeah. and, it, and it fits within your milieu <laughs> yeah no i i just have to say the pleasure is all mine i don't want to speak for toby and pleasure is all on this side yeah. of the table <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly no i you know i i had a great time it this went and uh i think it's in the best way it just kind of naturally found its own course yeah we i think this was a real good time and good luck in the future and you're more than welcome to um come back anytime you want once you if you want to discuss another movie or whatever the door is always wide open for you sean well i love it i'll hit you up for that down the road because i love uh rambling through this stuff and uh yeah what, what what's the next phase going to be aging hipster what's it going to be in 10 years <laughs> i mean like the age yeah. Um, so, anyways, thank you for listening to the Aging Hipster Movie Show. This show was written by Bob Serrano, Toby Kinds, and Tim Holly, produced and edited by Bob Serrano. The theme song was written and performed by Kid Mental. 
please check us out online join our facebook group or go to www.theagenthipsternetwork.com once again thank you have a great night